Hey, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. Hey, have you ever been worried that telling the truth won't get you laid or may get you not laid, whichever way you want to put it? A young man called in and he's kind of concerned that telling the truth might completely wreck his sexual market value. And uh, I had quite a bit to say about that. As a guy who vaguely remembered what it's like having sexual market value, we had a very, very good conversation about it, which I hope can help get you laid. So on the uh, second caller, you know, emotional intelligence or EQ, as or EI, it's sometimes called emotional intelligence. This is a guy who's studying psychology at the graduate school level, and he heard me in passing mention, mention some skepticism towards the concept of emotional intelligence. And since I talk about IQ quite a bit on the show and had a lot of experts in, why, oh, why could I possibly be skeptical about emotional intelligence? Well, the facts may surprise you. And uh, the third, yeah, a very interesting conversation with a fellow from the Middle East who's trying to bring peaceful parenting conversations to people in the Middle East. And he's having a little bit of trouble with it. And so we started talking about how best to bring peaceful parenting to a culture that's not overly receptive towards it, as a nice way of putting it. And then it turned into a general discussion about the Middle East and uh, Islam and Europe and Christianity and compatibility and what might happen in the future. A very, very good conversation. I really appreciate him bringing his honesty and curiosity to our chat. And the fourth caller is uh, a very smart guy, kind of bored with his current occupation and wants to do something more intellectual. Should he, in fact, go to university and take a degree in the arts? Well, I've had some experience, I guess three, three colleges I went to uh, before I got a master's degree. And I talked about some of the pluses and minuses of that and tried to help him come up with a decent framework for making a decision as to whether he should invest in college or whether there are other and better uses for his time, money, and energy if he has particular goals in mind. So great conversations all made possible because of you and your kindness and your generosity, which you can go and express at freedomainradio.com slash Free. We need your help, my friends. Don't rely on other people. Don't be a free rider. Do the right thing. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Go sign up for a subscription. Help us out. You'll feel better. And uh, we'll be able to eat. All right. Up first is Logan. Logan wrote in and said, Being a truth teller harms your sexual market value. Should a young man like myself risk it in order to help the cause of bringing truth to the world? That is Logan. Logan, how are you, my friend? I am well. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. And uh, why, 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 why would you imagine it lowers your sexual market value? Please explain this to me. Well, you, you, um, you mentioned it in one of your shows that if, if I'm the only one around saying the things that I'm saying, you know, people are going to think that I'm crazy, right? Right. So that, so that, that reason, I would say. Well. Right? That's not the same as saying it, it universally, right? There's a, there's a pretty important caveat in there, which is that you have to be the only one saying this stuff, right? Well, yeah, it could, it could seem like I'm the only one saying it because that I'm the only one that they hear, right? What do you mean? Well, I'm, uh, not a lot of people um, that I know have heard of, say, Austrian economics or the non-aggression principle, for example. Right. 
and how popular and, sorry no go ahead go ahead and what they what they consume um like what they what they look at uh, say the tv news or the little news apps that they have won't you know cover stuff like that or philosophy in general right right so go ahead well let's um let's sort of unpack this a little bit uh, to make sure that we don't paint with too broad a brush. Okay. So the question is, what are women looking for? Now, I'm going to assume that your sexual market value has to do with women, right? Yes. Okay. And so the question is, to understand what sexual market value is, my suggestion would be, the first question you have to ask is, what is sexual market value. What raises it? What do women respond to? Now, I'm just talking evolutionarily speaking, right? not with the current distortions of the welfare state and all this kind of crap, but right. what are women evolutionarily designed to respond to? Well, you, uh, you just said it on one of your last shows, um, assertiveness, right? Well, no, I mean, the, the guys, it's not just assertiveness. I mean, guys standing on a street corner screaming that the end is nigh and shaking dusty Bibles in the slanting afternoon sun are pretty assertive, but do not have a high sexual market value. Right. When I, when I say assertive, I mean um, being able to express their own needs and, um, and, uh, and not, just, not just think about the needs of the woman, think about their own needs and expect their needs to be thought of by their, you know, their partner. Right. So instead yeah, of I, I, I got, this, evolutionarily speaking, evolutionarily speaking, which means it's in common with all other <laughs> species. Okay. What other uh, females of the species looking for? How about um, like physical traits like height? Well, um, that's that's helpful, I guess. I mean, al although excessive height, you know, Andre the Giant stuff can be a sign of a pituitary gland problem as far as I understand it. So, And also, guys who are really tall tend to have knee problems and they also live less long because their heart has to work harder to pump the blood all over the place. So, But it can be a proxy. But what is it that women, and by women I mean eggs, what are they looking for? Resources. What are they evolutionarily designed to pursue? Um, a produce resources. Yeah, resources. resources. Right. Right? Sexuality is about children. And evolutionarily speaking, again, outside of the birth control pill and hot, kinky, 50 shades of gray, wax on the nipple stuff, it's about children. And women, the females of most species, but in particular, the females of the human species, are pretty disabled throughout most of their child childbearing years, right? Which, you know, evolutionarily speaking, would start at around 13 and end at around 35 or wind down at that age, right? So for a couple of decades, they are big with child, they are breastfeeding, they are chasing around toddlers, they are disabled. And that's, you know, <laughs> I always find it funny, you know, every time I put out stuff about men and women and dependents and the women are all like, I don't need no man. It's like, yeah, of course you don't. Unless you want to be a good mother, in which case you need a man because you need someone who's going to provide resources while you are pregnant. And you're going to need a good man because if the man is all about sex, 
than when you are when you know when your boobs are dripping with milk and you haven't slept in three days and your kid has been up coughing and right you're not a a hot mess I mean you're a mess but not a hot mess right and so it's got to be a guy who's going to be really devoted to family life so you need a good man a provider someone who can go out and get the resources that the babies need right and so in terms of truth telling doesn't matter fundamentally what matters is at least what women are biologically primed to respond to is can you get resources now how you get those resources is less important than whether you can get those resources so the question to me is can you get resources by telling the truth uh, yes. That's your sexual market value question. What about what about um, <clears throat> providing uh, like having a community and a tribe? Isn't that also attractive to, to women? Is knowing that you have a lot of friends and family, right? Well, tell me how that affects resources. Well, you have well, you have more. You have. You know, friends and family that could help you guys out when you're raising those children. Well, if you have good friends and family, or, you know, or if, friends you've family got, if you've got some sort of Norman Bates style guy who's got some creepy, overbearing, emaciated, intrusive, ghastly mom uh, who's got a whole bunch of emaciated, ghastly, intrusive, horrible friends, then the woman will be like, okay, he's got lots of people around him and they're all horrible. So the reason why that why I bring that up is because where I live, it's very there's a lot of different diversities, different, different lots of different ethnicities, right? And so, <clears throat> so so for me, so say there's um say there's a girls of a of a different race, different a different race, right? It would limit. Well, which race? Which race are we talking about? Um, let's say Asian, right? Which kind of Asian? Vietnamese, there's a lot of Vietnamese. Okay, so we're talking of, about a a Vietnamese girl. Yeah, so the, so there's lots of so in my city there's a lot of Vietnamese people, right? I'm not Vietnamese, I'm Hispanic by the way. Right. So say, and and I've also and I've heard you mention before that that um that you're talking about um, regression to the mean. So like, say that you know my race uh, is, uh, has an average. IQ of of something, and then my IQ is higher than that, mm-hmm. right? So I get that that could be a biological factor as well. But I also think that if if say say like you know my my parents wouldn't be able to talk to her parents very well, and they wouldn't get along so well, right? Because because we, we actually have that situation. Uh, I'm not married myself, but uh, my brother he's married to a Vietnamese woman, right? Right. And so. Uh, over the holidays, I had uh, I had dinner with him, and uh, I mean I've had dinner with him before, and so you know I've I noticed that because they're a different race, my brother and her father, they can't really get along as well because there's language barriers. Right, and and cultural. Cultural, yeah, barriers, yeah, cultural, right? yeah, yeah, and and then obviously our two parents don't wouldn't be able to, you know, get along very well. Right. 
Well, so as far as IQ goes, and again, this is just a rough benchmark, the average IQ in Vietnam is 94. Right. And the average Hispanic IQ is uh, 85 to 90, sort of depending on uh, origin. So, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not like you're trying to match up an Ashkenazi Jew with, which is sort of the top of the range with, um, somebody from the outback in Australia, an Aboriginal with IQs in the sixties. Right. So yeah, there seems to be some, uh, some potential compatibility there. And again, you don't right, want to right. collectively judge everyone, but it's not a bad place to, no, 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 to it's, start. It's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because about a couple of years ago, right. I was listening to, to one of your shows and this is when you were just kind of first kind of diving into the race and IQ stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember because, uh, cause you mentioned Ashkenazi in your podcast. And then I said to myself, I've heard that before. Where was it? Well, a couple of years back, or maybe like a year uh, before that, I remember I took a DNA test on one of those like ancestry sites, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where I seen it before. It was in my genetic profile. And just out of curiosity, what was your genetic profile? Uh, about 40% kind of North American uh, 40% Southern European. Well, hang on, sorry. F- 40% North American. What is that? What is, I don't know. That that's a pretty broad category. What does that mean? Um, I don't, I'm guessing you know the the humans that once they left Africa they went you know towards oh, Native Russia. American, and Co- Native American. Yeah. Okay. 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 Got it. Yeah, so about so 40% Native American, and then what? Uh, uh Southern European. Uh-huh. Iberian Peninsula. Peninsula. And, and so this and is sort of tiny, Spaniards tiny, plus locals, right? Yeah, and a in a tiny a tiny sliver of of Ashkenazi DNA. All right, Kajing. excellent. Yeah, so you know, good job to my ancestors for you know giving me that genetic job, pop, right? Absolutely. But but, but yeah, no. Well, and, you know, if you don't mind slightly higher levels of some neuroticism <laughs> and other genetic diseases, but all right, I think you probably got the benefit out of that. That's why you need philosophy to keep you sane. Right. Um, yeah, and so, uh, and then when I when I heard that, it, it all kind of clicked because, um, you know, me and my family, we've we've never hung out with uh, Hispanics really, you know. Uh, we we usually hang out with higher IQ races, and I never really thought about that. But once I started hearing that, what's it? Hang on, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what what's it? What's it like for you guys to hang out with sort of average Hispanics? Oh, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of the words to describe it. Um, a bit more. Rough. Is it a whole lot of pretending to get really excited about soccer? Uh, no, no. Baseball or football, I suppose. Right. These are Americanized, so. Um, oh, okay, got it. Yeah, it's a little bit. It's, it's um, there's a lot more drinking. You know, we'll drink more when we hang with Hispanics. Well, um, I mean, I can't even remember what what we talk about because. Because uh, my oldest brother, he has a lot of Mexican friends, and so you know we've gone to you know tailgates with them and uh, kind of hung out with them in general, and just a lot of drinking involved. So I'm guessing the conversation isn't memorable. Right. So you you're spending a lot of time not connecting with each other because you're drinking, which then produces a bunch of I can't believe I was so drunk that stories, which is just another way of not connecting with people and so on. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I when I was in my teens, I spent a couple of weekends drinking because, you know, that's supposed to be the big thing, right? A couple of weekends drinking. 
it was just, uh, you know, it was sort of interesting. I mean, it was interesting being disoriented, but uh, it wasn't a huge amount of fun. It certainly didn't, you know, so I didn't shut my brain off or anything like that. It takes more than mere alcohol to slow down this beast. But um, Of course, of course. But it was never that interesting. And I, I always felt that a lot of people were kind of faking how much fun it was. And for me, at least, you know, the next day I'd have a hangover. And couldn't really do anything with my day. And it was like, okay, so the upside isn't really that much of an upside. But the downside is pretty considerable. I, I hate hangovers, like with a with a passion. I hate hangovers. And I haven't been hungover since probably one of my cast parties when I was an actor as a young man. And, um, you know, in my very early 20s. Uh, and uh, I, I hate because you can't, you can't do anything. You can't read, you can't watch TV, you just basically, you're in a slow time, vaguely nauseous state with a headache. And it's like, wow, you know, I'd, I'd pay good money to not have this illness. <laughs> Why would I pay good money to, to pursue it when it's not even that much fun? Sorry, you were going to say? So, um, I remember one birthday, uh, somebody gave me this little handheld video recorder, right? And then later on that night, we had a party. And so I was, you know, uh, recording, doing a lot of recording that night and you know and um we're doing we were drinking as well and uh, anyway so i looked at the video the next day and i was just so horrified by just you know seeing what everyone looked like and what we sounded like uh drunk that i just deleted everything so just a little right. story oh yeah like if you ever want to give up drinking with people just, just go out with people who are drinking and don't drink yeah and just watch them progressively <laughs> get stupider and louder and more embarrassing and watch them progressively make worse and worse decisions and then watch them the next morning right, right. Um, not having any fun at all for the whole day. Yeah, it's a pretty easy cure. Yeah. And so the reason why I brought up um, you know, this whole having compatible tribe is so <clears throat> so let's say I go for a Hispanic woman, right? So on average she's gonna she's lucky to um Hold on, let me see. I want to say this. So basically, you know, my family's Hispanic, and and then if I marry a Hispanic woman, you know, she'll have her Hispanic family, so there'll be more, I don't know, co- cohesiveness between the two, between the two families, right? Right. Sorry, you gonna go on or? Um. Well, yeah. So um, I just wanted to point out that's why that's why I brought that up. So should I choose to um, find a Hispanic woman? Well, I think it'd be a little bit difficult. Given the you know difference of intelligence, and um, I don't know, we, we just don't generally have too much fun with Hispanics, you know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that you're not conventionally religious, right? So that's gonna be a big factor too, right? I mean, yeah, which is, uh, yeah. You know, she's gonna want to get the kids baptized or whatever it is, right? Or I mean, if she's Catholic, I would assume something along those lines, right? And that can be that can be pretty. Pretty exhaustive, right? I could be a factor, right? Right, right. So if I go, so let's say I go for a woman of another tribe, then um, I don't know, because like I said, my brother and his wife, they're you know they're different races, and I can see where you know where where there are advantages and dis well disadvantages more so than anything of you know being mixed race couple. Well, but do they have do they have kids? No, no, no. Do they want kids? Uh, they say, but they're not really moving in that direction. So, right. so. Yeah, I mean, uh, do you want, do you want, like, the rant, or do you want to put more info into the 
rand wood chipper at the moment uh, do you need any more info i got if there's do you have no if you got shit? more if uh, you got more that you think is relevant uh i'm I, don't know. I would say i'm pretty good with women you know i'm confident uh outgoing popular you know good conversationalist good looking i would say solid seven solid seven i don't know if that so yeah, I, no, I, was, I I got a lot good. going for me. I got a lot going for me. But but if I ever find myself attracted to a woman and I just know that I'm only attracted to her because of her looks, that's when I kind of you know stop and think about it. Oh yeah, no, uh, dating a woman just for her looks is like having a friend just because he buys you things. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty shallow. Yeah, so not. I, I got to make sure I don't confuse the two because that's such you know it's it's easy for guys to do that. Yeah, what your dick thinks is virtuous is not exactly the same as what philosophy might call. It may not be the opposite, but it sure ain't the same, right? Yeah, yeah. So go on, go ahead. All right. Um, you may be overthinking it a little bit. And listen, when I say overthinking it, yeah, hopefully I've got some credibility to say that there may be some reason to, to listen to it. Right? To I know, I know. You may be overthinking it a little bit. Wow, okay. Look, if you want the highest quality female then focus on being amazing. Focus on being amazing. Focus on being the best conceivable version of yourself. Build amazing things. Have amazing ideas. Challenge people. Become the gadfly. Become the bothersome brilliance in your community. Aim at fantastic and you will attract a great woman. That is the way that I have tried to approach things in my life. I have not spent a lot of time pursuing women in my life. I have spent a lot of time pursuing greatness in my life. And as a result of that, I have had some great women in my life. I'm currently, as you know, married to a stupendously wonderful woman. And and how did how did we meet? Well, we were playing on the same volleyball team. She asked me how my day was. I said my day was great. I just got my novel published. Well, I just got a publisher for my novel. And I did not make a lot of money from that novel. <laughs> to put it mildly, I did not make a lot of money from that novel. Was it the Karevitius? No, uh, it was uh, one called Revolutions. Uh, which is uh, in uh, a 19th century Russian novel. I and it, yes, by the way. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Did you read it? Yes. And? I uh, thought it was amazing. amazing yeah. <laughs> it's a great book. It's a great book. Uh-huh. Anyway, thank yes. you. I appreciate that. I'm very proud of that book. But I didn't make much money, and I spent a year writing revolutions. Um, I'd like, I wrote the ending twice, like the last half of the book. And... All of the time that I spent writing that book and getting, I don't know, a penny an hour or something like that when it comes to like how much money I made from the book was all worth it. Because I had written a book and I said to my wife, I wrote a book and right, oh, to my future wife, right? I said to this woman I just met, I wrote a book. Well, that, um, she found that interesting. She'd never met anyone who'd written a novel before. Met guys who wrote books, but never wrote someone who. So I aimed at the book and I got the girl. And 
that is my most successful piece of literature because it resulted in my marriage. Right? That is my bestseller. That made me a billion dollars worth of quality woman. I aimed at something great, and I got something great. Right? Go out and do amazing things. Aim high. Yeah, no, I, I definitely do. Now, you, you don't have to be as literal as Donald Trump and build giant Trump cocks across the landscape. Well, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm glad Trump you're talking Trump Tower, about Donald come Trump. on. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. So a couple of days ago, uh, you released a show where you were talking about Melania Trump. And it's funny because earlier that day, I just spent the, the morning looking at videos of Melania Trump um, during uh, you know, the whole presidential campaign. She's pretty cool, I would say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason why I, I was interested in that is because I remember one thing that Trump said. It was probably one of his rallies. But he said that, that she was a private woman and that there's something special about that, right? And, and that was kind of interesting. That she was a what woman? Uh, private. She was a private mm. Yeah. And that there was something special about that. And I never heard that before. So I'm watching this interview... It's uh, it's Donald Melania and Barbara Walters, and Barbara Walters asks asks her, um, what she says to Donald, privately. And uh, she looks at Barbara and she says, "I don't want to answer." And then uh, she laughs. She looks at at Donald, and then uh, Donald uh, answers the questions for them. Yeah, it's a nosy witch. <laughs> yeah, Donald Donald Trump is like the he's the alpha of the alpha as far as Western men go western caucasian men or whatever you could do it. and what's interesting is he's very interested in eastern european and central european women why why relatively uninfected by radical feminism yeah yeah just yeah that, that reminded me of a show you did before you're right just read uh, a study today and the study was um significant evidence that the more a couple shares housework equally, the more likely they are to get divorced. Interesting. And what I, what I like about Donald Trump's wife is, well, first of all, she, to, like, when, when Donald Trump went to her and said, I want to run for president, I mean, I don't know what she would have thought, but, I mean, she certainly would have had some idea just how brutal it was going to be. That every single thing from the man's somewhat colorful past was going to be dredged up and flung against him, right? Yeah. And she obviously more than gave him her blessing. He couldn't do it without her, without her support, without her enthusiasm without her willingness to go and be interviewed. And that's very impressive to me that the woman would be willing to, to do all of that. I don't know that she's ever had any particular ambitions to be like first lady or something like that. Right, no, yeah. He's Although, just... you know, there are worse postage stamps to lick, I guess, in the future. But And so I think it's very impressive that she's behind him in this, right? He's not isolated. His kids, his, his extended family, his business partnerships, his... His wife, they all have to be behind him, guaranteed. 
guaranteed. And that's one thing that's cool. The other thing that I thought was cool was Donald Trump is one of these weird vampires who has a ridiculously unfair advantage in life in that the guy needs like three or four hours of sleep a night. And, and Bill Clinton's the same way. You know, after he's feasted on four or five interns, he, you know, drinks their blood, youth, innocence, and hope, and future careers, and then, you know, feasts uh, uh, on them, and then needs only a couple hours sleep, and then, you know, he's, he's, he's back up and at him. And it's completely unfair. For me, it's like, uh, I, had, I had less than seven hours sleep. I don't know if I can function. Like, my, <laughs> I'm, I'm a sleep whore. As far as that goes, like I, I need my sleep. I need my sleep. I need my sleep. And uh, the idea for me of like three hours sleep, it's like, oh, God, <laughs> what a nightmare. So totally unfair. Guy gets like way more productive hours in the day than I do, but we'll survive. Anyway, so Donald Trump stays up too late. According, like he's, you know, he stays up too late and he gets up too early and she doesn't think he gets enough sleep. And the interviewer, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but it, it was something like, well, what do you say to him? And she's like, well, what do you mean, what do I say to him? He's an adult. (laughs) He can can make his own decisions, right? That he has habits she disagrees with, and she's like, yeah, but he's an adult. He makes his own decisions. And that idea that you have a beautiful woman who supports you, who says, if you run for president, you're going to win. Listen, listen. When it comes to trying to achieve something great in this life, my friend, if you have people around you who don't fully believe in you, you can't achieve it. Success is not something you will for yourself. Success is something you assemble via the people around you. Because if you have people saying, oh, I don't know, I don't think you can do it, it might be too risky, it could be, you know, it's like you're trying to cross a wire without a net. And people are just throwing little cactuses at your balls. <laughs> you're just not gonna. You're not gonna make it. You're not gonna make it. Uh, you need to. And, and this is not a selfish thing. You need to believe in the people around you and support them as well, and all kinds of cool stuff. But she is a. And I think she's an amazing woman. Um, she is uh, very intelligent. And. Um, Obviously very attractive and very self-possessed and uh, willing to be in the limelight, although she's a private person. And she's willing to make sacrifices for a greater goal, a greater good. I mean, they certainly don't need the money. I mean, Donald Trump could spend the rest of his life uh, sipping champagne and caviar by a pool. And, uh, you know, he's off there doing... Apparently, four to five hundred rallies a day, if I if I read the Internet correctly, you know, rather than tripping and falling over his wife, which, you know, would probably not be a bad way to spend 20 or 30 minutes. And so the fact that she's willing to support him in this mad venture that requires a lot of guts and requires a lot of energy. And, um, you know, Donald Trump said the other day, you got to be tough to run for president. You got to be tough. And um, he is a sensitive guy in a lot of ways and does like to get along with people. But he has a higher calling and he can't do it without his wife. So he is, he is aiming at amazing things and that is what is attracting these women, guaranteed. Right? If you, if you, if you worship a woman, all she sees is 
putting her on a pedestal means you ain't out there getting resources for the eggs. Women want men who aim at life, who are out there building amazing things. Then the women will come to you. Will come to you. And in terms of thinking about your sexual market value, the only sexual market value that really counts is to be thoroughly, enjoyably, and deeply, and powerfully yourself. Well, there's only one of you. Whatever you can create a value that is unique to your identity, you automatically have a monopoly on. You know, say, oh, you're going to be a fast typist. Okay. Well, lots of people can type fast. It has to be something that is unique to you if you want to make some money and uh, do some amazing things. And it doesn't all have to do with making money, but that's in a lot of ways how it actually translates. Because making money is a sign of providing value, as you know from Austrian economics, right? Right. I mean, people say Donald Trump has made $10 billion. No. He has taken a small part of the value he's produced. He hasn't made $10 billion. He's produced a trillion dollars. And he gets to keep a small percentage of that. Or whatever the number happens to be. So don't, you know, sexual market value is one of these things that's easy to get distracted by. Do great things and see who's interested. Do great things and see who's interested. That's all it's about. And that's what I mean when I say you're overthinking things. If you're doing great things in this world, great people will want to spend time with you. And if you're not, then you're going to be stuck pursuing low-rent people who will then trap you in their small world. See, if you're aiming to break through the biosphere of historical limitations... If you're aiming to bust out, to break through, to, to break beyond, to break orbit from your history, then people will find you who are also interested in surmounting history and breaking out of history. But if you go for low-rent people, which is what happens when you think too much about sexual market value rather than going out and doing amazing and great things, then you'll end up pursuing people who are relatively small-minded and then if you get married or have kids with those people, there'll be a ball and chain around you forever. Because you, you went for the low-rent world, and that means that you'll never get out. Whatever you try to do, they'll pull you back down. Does that help, Paul? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it helps. Uh, yeah, um, because you're right. I I, I agree. I, I was overthinking it, and when I mentioned that, um, what 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 uh, Donald Trump said about his wife being a private person, it just it kind of reminded me of that. That you know I'm gonna have a lot of I'm gonna have a, a lot of women that are gonna they're gonna pursue me, and I'm gonna have to you know pick a, find a good woman. So I gotta find just um I gotta you gotta know what to look for. You know it um. I don't know, little personality traits that, that I never thought of, like, you know, being private and being able to, you know, to keep a secret and to be, you know, trustworthy. Right. Right. And 
the reason people end up living these small lives is, is quite simple, that they think everyone around them is really great and really loves them. But if that's true, then the people that are around you, if they're really great and they really love you, they should value and encourage when you aim for the stars, right? Yeah. They should really be pro and positive all of that. And what happens is that people pretend that everyone around them loves them and cares them, cares for them and wants the best for them. But they studiously avoid any kind of challenging ambitions because they know deep down what's going to happen if they go for some challenging, tradition-breaking ambition. They know that everyone around them is just going to attack them or undermine them or ignore them or neglect them or avoid them. But they're going to signal negative. They're going to signal their disapproval. And that's why people stay small and play small because they don't want to reveal that those around them don't want them to grow, don't want them to change, don't want to provide any higher vista or any bigger view or greater vista or more lofty ambition. They just want to stay small. They just want to stay small. And there's almost no viciousness in the world more destabilizing and ugly than watching a low-rent group of people struggling to keep a great soul down. It's a grim, grim battle. And this is why, you know, like I never really bought this whole Marxist thing about it's the capitalists who exploit and keep down the workers. Bullshit. That's just complete bullshit. It's the other workers who exploit and keep down the workers. You know, try, try and go and become a foreman or try and go and be- expand your education or try and go and become a manager. Oh. oh, I guess you're too good to hang out with us now. You know, just all that. They'll just reject you to try and keep you down. That's where real class class structures come from. It's not from the capitalist. Capitalist is thrilled when a worker wants to really work hard and wants to provide value. Capitalists are thrilled with that. But it's hard to it's hard to have a culture among the workers where worker excellence is praised, is is venerated. I just you try and you try and climb up and people just Want to claw you back down? Just want to claw you back down. Then you have a choice. Then you have a choice, right? You can either stay down in the gutter with these people and pretend that you have friends and give up on your potential, or you can just keep moving, keep up, keep moving, keep up. And whoever wants to come along can come along. In my life, it was precisely no one from my past, but it's not my choice fundamentally. Do you see this at all? I mean, when you sort of, um, in the Hispanic community or in your community, that if anybody has ambition or wants to do better or greater things, that there's uh, some sort of subtle or not so subtle pressure to not do that? I can't hear you. Did you mute? I guess we'll just have to move on to the next caller. But yeah, Logan, just, just aim at being great in your life. Aim at being the deepest and most powerful version of yourself and just see who comes along for the ride and who's interested in that. The best, the best filter is, um, 
mad ambition and deep authenticity. So I hope that helps. And, and thanks a lot for your call. I really, really appreciate it. Let us know how it goes. And uh, Mike, let's move on to the next call. Up next is Josh. Josh wrote in and said, On a prior show, you, in passing, expressed skepticism towards the concept of emotional intelligence. IQ is a regular topic on your show, and I'd like to hear you expand on that comment and tackle the larger concept of intelligence. That is from Josh. Well, hello, Josh. Uh, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Steph. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, you too. So what's your understanding of and, and history with emotional intelligence? Well, um, actually, uh, I'm an adjunct lecturer, and I teach psychology. Uh, and I'm a pr- prospective doctoral student, God willing. you know. But um, I interviewed at this um, clinic, and uh, the woman who ran it was offering a book that she sold to her clients uh, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, G-O-L-E-M-A-N. And it's like from 1995, I think. And right. she's basically making this big case, emotional intelligence, really, really important because she had different notions about treating borderline personality disorder. Anyway, without getting to like super minutiae detail, um, when you said that you kind of thought emotional intelligence was bunk, um, it shocked me, and, and I've been listening for a few years now, so I, I kind of thought I got to the point where I was like, nothing you say could shock me. <laughs> oh, trust me, there's always something to be shocked about. Right. So, um, I mean, in I kind of agree with you in, with, in regards to we live in somewhat of a gynocentric culture because my whole life, emotional intelligence was a, a very high value. You know, everywhere I went, education from a very young age, people, big. it's a big, big deal. So... I just was curious why you didn't think it was so important or, or less important than regular intelligence. Uh, well, because numbers, right? Because, because I'm an empiricist. And, uh, you know, when people make a claim that emotional intelligence is superior to intelligence, intelligence, or IQ, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm open, always open to hearing the case for things. Mm-hmm. What are the numbers? And do you know what the numbers are? Um, actually, I did a little bit of reading before uh, this call, and I actually did not see those numbers. So, All right. Well, I'll give you some numbers. But should we do a tiny bit of history first? Uh, if you feel it's necessary, sure. Go ahead. Okay. So um, the book, Emotional Intelligence, came out in 1995, mm-hmm. which was a year or two after which book came out? Oh, you probably got <laughs> That talked a lot about IQ. I'm not sure. You got me there. Ah, the bell curve. Oh, okay. Right. Right. So, um, Charles Murray, who's been on the show, and Richard Herrenstein, who hasn't because he died shortly before the book came out, they wrote a book and they said um, intelligence is very important and it's a very great predictor of success and failure and all the other kinds of, you know, good and bad things. Mm-hmm health and marital stability and and um, and mental health as well higher iq people have more robust mental health uh, they're less prone to um, pathological dysfunction in thinking and so on right and they and in one of the chapters i think it was chapter 13 they said that um blacks do poorly in america blacks do poorly in europe blacks do poorly in africa blacks do poorly kind of everywhere right and, the, you know, one of the main reasons is 
because blacks uh, in America score a standard deviation or so, 15 points or so below whites in IQ. I think it's like 18 points of IQ it ends up to being. I think that the gap has narrowed a tiny bit Mm. since the 1970s. You know, again, sort of better nutrition, better education. There seems to be some slight narrowing, but it's still a gulf, to put it mildly. And, um, and of course, you know, there are almost two standard deviations below Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, you know, 20 points or so below East Asians and so on, right? So we've talked about this, uh, this before. Now, the American Psychological Association, of course, was, you know, outraged and they convened a whole bunch of people together to, to look at the data and they said, yeah, okay, it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, blacks score a standard deviation 15 points or so below whites in the IQ test. The IQ test is not culturally biased, and the IQ test is a significant predictor of future success in life. And the significant majority of discrepancies in the outcomes between blacks and whites in America are due to IQ. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not blacks who do poorly. It's everyone with an IQ averaging out at 85. If you take a, a group of whites and have them clustered around an average IQ of 85. In other words, if you take the bottom slice of white IQ ability, they do about the same as blacks. And if you take Asians and you cluster around the IQ 85 Asians, they do about as well as the whites with an IQ of 85 and they do about as well as the blacks. So it's the market is measuring IQ. It's not measuring race. Mm -hmm. And that came out in the, uh, I think it was 93, 94, something like that. And what happened was everybody went insane. Yeah. (laughs) And next thing you know, there's a book which comes out which creates a new metric, don't you know? A new metric. Can I play devil's advocate for a second? Yeah. I don't know necessarily that they're saying it's superior so much that uh, it's an alternative or rather it's a way to measure other fundamental life skills. I could be wrong about that. Well, let me check the title of the book. <laughs> Emo- I think it says, I think it's why it may be more important than IQ. Right. But that's a provocative title, no? To sell the, to sell the, uh... Well, it's, it's considered to be a, a, a parallel. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me just check the title of the book. Okay, it's got a couple subtitles. The groundbreaking book that redefines what it means to be smart, and then also why it can matter more than IQ. That's uh... Ah, why it can matter more than IQ. Okay, so it's some sort of parallel universe thing where intelligence, right? Now, Daniel Goldman's book, which came out, had no science behind it, no studies at all. Oh, nothing. No, it's just all anecdotal. Nothing. Completely. Nothing. And I got to tell you, the fact is that it seems to appeal to lower IQ people while having no science behind it. I'm not sure it's a complete accident. Right, right. No science behind it whatsoever. No studies. Yeah, it was actually frustrating to read. (laughs) Or liberating, depending on how you look at it, right? Well, I mean, it did give me some things to think about. Um, No, 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 no. I I understand that. Of course, look. Self-knowledge, we'll get to the pluses, right? But let's just talk about the data first, right? Mm-hmm. Now, since then, some studies have been done. The problem is nobody can really define what emotional intelligence is. Mm-hmm. 
right? I checked up the psychology wiki and there are like, I don't know, three or four or five major definitions of emotional intelligence. That's kind of a problem <laughs> to begin with. The second thing, of course, is it's all about self-reporting, right? Of course, yeah. And self-reporting is, I don't know, I just assume bullshit until significant amounts of data show me otherwise. Right. So some studies uh, have been done since then. And what they've done is they've tried to figure out if people score really high on EQ tests, what effect does that have on their job performance? And they've managed to narrow it down to a percentage. And do you know what that percentage is? I do not. It is three. Hmm. It is three. IQ is 27, I think it is. 25, 27%. And EQ is three. <laughs> now, that may be overstating EQ enormously. Because somebody who's very intelligent will know how to answer an EQ test. We'll figure it out, right? And so an EQ test may just be measuring intelligence. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, my I mean there's, some, there's some significant correlation between IQ and EQ tests, right? Because my question would be, what if somebody scores really low on IQ and scores really high on EQ? Okay, and now if they do better than people who score high on IQ but low on EQ, that might. But how do you say? I don't know of studies that have separated these two. Mm. So it could just be that the EQ is functioning as a substitute and low rent IQ test. Right. So job performance, you can guesstimate about 3% of job performance varies with regards to IQ, uh, EQ, sorry. And much, much more, many times more by IQ. Now, of course, the, the pushback is that um, people say, well, yeah, but some jobs, it's some guy typing it away in a back room. He never deals with any customers. He never tries to make any sales. He never really tries to influence anyone. So those jobs have a low EQ requirement. And so let's test those. And they found EQ predicts 0% of the jobs they put into that category, right? I suppose it's now, not startling. <laughs> yeah, and that's not startling, right? Now, <clears throat> there are jobs, and I, I don't know what the classifications are, I'm, but there are jobs, and I'll, we'll put a link to uh, a video where a woman's explaining this, we can put that in the show notes, but there are jobs with, you know, much more, you could say, touchy-feely kinds of interactions, and there, high EQ scores versus low IQ scores can predict up to 7% of job performance. And again, that's still a lot lower than IQ, right. but that's not insignificant, right? Uh, out of a year, that's like three to four weeks additional productivity. If you thought I can up it 7%. But again, I don't know if the IQ and EQ are separated so that you know that the improvements in a high EQ score are not due to underlying IQ High IQ being good at figuring out what to answer in the EQ score. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, there are some indications that outside of job performance, you know, general happiness, general well-being, and so on, that there may be some relationships between EQ and, uh, you know, general happiness and, and all that kind of stuff. But, but again, using what definition of EQ has it been sufficiently separated from IQ? Because 
people who are smarter are more emotionally mature on average, and they are more emotionally healthy. People who are smarter, like, oh man, let me tell you, have you ever dated somebody who's not too smart? <laughs> um, I'm afraid to say I have, yes. Right. How was that in terms of conflict? Uh, well, I mean, I guess the use of the word dated would be relative because it didn't really last more than a few weeks ever. Okay, well, and why? Why figure did figure out that the person was not as intelligent as I would like them to be? Right. Have you ever had conflict with somebody who's not intelligent? Um, yes, I have. And and what's that like? Very unpleasant. <laughs> Very unpleasant, right? Um, would you, do you have any sort of characteristics that you could describe of what it's like to have conflict with lower uh, IQ people? It, it, can, it can be explosive, um, uh, just very, I don't know, aggressive and explosive and, and just unpleasant. I mean, not to be redundant. Right. I, I find well, that, uh, yeah, go ahead. I could just add one more thing, that um, there's usually one kind of concept or argument that this type of person will cling on to and then they'll just repeat it endlessly hoping that by sheer brutality of of their words they can you know win the disagreement or something yeah they 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 pick a position which serves their immediate self-interest and just hang on to it like a like a puppy with a bone right right and they just they repeat and they repeat and repeat and dig in and repeat and dig in and have it seems like a pretty much physics inability to admit that they're wrong. Yes. Like in my experience with low IQ people, I actually expect them to be able to levitate before <laughs> being able to admit fault and change their perspective. Right. Right. And when people have a, a fixed position, low intelligence people don't really process the long-term costs of what they're doing. Right. Right. It's all, it, it, their time frame for a positive outcome is only in the now. It's never, what's this going to do to our relationship two, two months from now? It's just about winning in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's that old, you, you know, this called the marshmallow test, right? Yeah, impulse control. Right. Yeah, impulse control, the ability to defer gratification, yep. to, to bite your tongue rather than say something unpleasant because, you know, it might give you a momentary satisfaction, but it's going to do damage to the relationship in the longer run, right? Right. And so more intelligent people are more diplomatic. They are generally more patient. They uh, are less verbally abusive. Uh, they take fewer fixed positions. They're willing to compromise. They're willing to admit that they're wrong. And I have, for various historical reasons that aren't really that important to get into right now, but I have a visceral disgust with people who cannot admit that they're wrong. Oh, it's, it's probably one of the most awful qualities a person can have. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Yeah, because everything becomes win-lose. And because they never admit fault, you always have to just knuckle under or run. There's, there's no other choice. Mm -hmm. You either self-erase or you get the hell out. And, you know, as you know, I'm sure it's not that subtle in this show, 
we're we're constantly weeding, <laughs> right? Constantly providing arguments that people are going to find startling, so that we can weed out the lower IQ people. I, I want to maintain the higher IQ audience, right? Which means every now and then, got to present ideas that are going to be startling to people, going to push back or ask skeptical questions about their particular sacred cows. And, you know, some proportion of the audience is going to explode in rage. You know, call me an asshole. Tell me how disappointed they are, you know, <laughs> because I entirely guide my life by anonymous people's typing about disappointment. That's how I run my life. It's nothing to do with values or the respect of people I love or philosophy. It's just, is an anonymous typist claiming to be disappointed with me? Oh, I must change. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. It's so sad. It's, I mean, sad and funny. I said bittersweet comedy right but um so so when it comes to emotional intelligence it has a lot to do with the deferral of gratification in other words i'm willing to admit that i'm wrong which is going to be unpleasant in the moment but it's going to build trust and and honesty in the relationship and <clears throat> you see when you're with smart people and you admit that they're wrong they appreciate it they respect you for it and they reciprocate that right mm-hmm when you're with idiots and you tell them that you're wrong, what do they say? I'm sorry. Can you say it again? I, I spaced for a second. I apologize. When you're with idiots right. and you admit that you're wrong, what do they say? Oh, yeah. What do they do? They, they, they definitely uh, kind of Ronda Rousey gloat in it and throw it in your face. And yeah, it's, 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 it's aha. I knew it. Yeah. You finally admitted that you were wrong. I told you the whole damn time, and you told me I was wrong, and you refused. Now I got you, you son of a bitch. You knew you were wrong. Right. You finally admitted, and I'm going to throw this in your face from now to eternity. Yep. Aha! Victory! And then they do a big dance showing their hairy plumber's crack. <laughs> yeah, they lured it over you, for sure. Yeah, they have now won. And you are now fucked for having admit that you're wrong. Yeah. Right? <sighs> I have a small caveat, I guess, because generally speaking, I don't disagree with you. And even when I first heard you make this argument, I, I kind of, I mean, my, my personal feeling about intelligence is that, it, you know, that it is a universal kind of ability. Um, and uh, it's more of like the firepower or the horsepower that your engine can exert in pursuit of things. Um, so yeah, someone who's reason who's reasonably intelligent or exceptionally intelligent will generally have uh, greater self-control and greater ability and, and, and demonstrate more, I don't know, aptitude for skills and things like that. But, uh, I mean, I, I feel like the conversation slightly ignores the fact that basically everybody going around is traumatized. So it's like even like the high IQ people, I think, uh, are operating at somewhat of a lower decibel level, if that makes any sense? Oh, no, no, I get all of that. I and mean, we'll talk about, you know, in a sec, the ideals, but I just sort of want to lay out the map. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so EQ is also a test that is pretty subjective. Right? IQ tests, by their very nature, have to be somewhat objective, largely objective, right? There's a right or wrong answer. Right, so, you know, you read somebody the five numbers, can they repeat them backwards mm-hmm. to you? I mean, that's right, or it's not subjective, right? Right. It's not. How much can you say that you empathize with another human being? Come on. 
Come on. <laughs> yeah. Right? Someone is crying. Are they A, happy, or B, sad? Right? I mean, I, I'm, obviously, I don't know what the questions are in an EQ test, but clearly they're subjective. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you're asking people whether they understand what someone else is feeling. But sociopaths and con artists are very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. Right? It kind of destroys. So, so the fact that you know what someone else is feeling, you know, torturers are really good at knowing what other people feel because they want to cause them maximum pain, right? Right. So I don't know even that truly understanding what someone else is feeling and being able to tease out their emotional state or whatever, I don't know that that has anything to do with being a good person. Now, again, you could argue that IQ is not, but IQ is associated with certain improvements in morality as a whole. Higher IQ people, less fraud, less theft, less murder, less assault, less rape. You know, these are all low impulse control IQ 85 average crimes, right? Sure. On average. And so, yeah, on average, of course, right. And so, I don't know, this subjectivist, touchy-feely self-reporting test, it's such a chick thing. (laughs) It's such a chick thing. Like, you know, before the show, I watched a bunch of, and it was all women trying to talk about, I oh, know there was one guy, somewhat loosely using the term. <laughs> and, you know, they were all, and they all made these statements with no empirical backup whatsoever. IQ is, EQ is super important. EQ is the biggest predictor of your success. There are no facts behind that. And so I don't like disciplines where people make outlandish claims, which is not backed up by the data, where the founding book of the entire movement, which is still in print, I think, has no data behind it whatsoever. And where there's a whole bunch of different definitions of what EQ actually is, and where there's not a skeptical approach taken to what is actually being measured. What is actually being measured? You know, like you could maybe measure the EQ of someone by secretly recording them in a conflict when they didn't know they were being recorded and didn't know that anyone, and then you could analyze what they were saying. and That would give you some non-self-reported facts. But there's none of that in the EQ stuff. And, you know, I can think, oh, all successful leaders have high EQ. Oh, bullshit. Oh, bullshit and a half. Do people honestly think that Bill Gates has high emotional intelligence? The guy smelled and had dandruff. Do, do people really think that, that um, Steve Jobs... Jobs, yeah, explosive anger and just hostile... Explosive anger abandoned his daughter when he was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. His daughter was struggling to survive on his... Ex-girlfriend's welfare check? Oh, yeah. All about the EQ. (laughs) It just, it seems like kind of a con to me. That's all. I don't know what's being measured. The limitations of the data are significant, to put it as mildly as, as possible. And, 
that that having been said, self knowledge is fantastic. You know, I believe in improving one's emotional skills. You know, how many times have I said suggested to people go to a therapist versus how many times have I suggested to people go and take a doctorate in philosophy? <laughs> yeah. I believe, you know, in, in emotional self knowledge and and so on. I think it's very, very important. But um I don't like the subjectivist, relativistic, self-reported, data-averse nature of emotional intelligence and that, that whole field. In other words, self-knowledge, I think, is great. I don't know. I don't really believe that what's called emotional intelligence is um, it accurately describes self-knowledge. And the last example I'll give is... Who is to say that being overly sensitive to other people's feelings? Sorry, that's a bit of a that's that's poisoning the well by saying. Or who's 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 to say that being very sensitive to other people's feelings is a good thing? Well, I mean, that really you know, if, really if you're a sense. coach, if you're a coach, you're going to have to push people when they don't want to be pushed. You're going to have to have a certain blindness towards other people's feelings. Uh, anybody who wants to, you know, create in particular moral advances to humanity, you know, like I've got this big thing around not spanking and peaceful parenting and so on, that makes a lot of people feel really bad because they've already committed to the hitting your children and yelling at your children and abusing your children, and so they feel really, really bad. You know, the people who ended slavery were ending an institution that was accepted as foundational to human society and morality and had been for ever since there was human societies. And so when they began to redefine slavery as an immoral thing, they made tens of millions of people around the world feel pretty bad. Mm. So I don't know that this being sensitive to other people's feelings is a good thing. In, in other words, EQ, being able to ignore other people's feelings and in fact act counter to the resistance of other people's upset and anger it's pretty foundational. Like, what was the EQ of the suffragettes? I don't know. I mean, they certainly annoyed the living hell out of a lot of people and were willing to, 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 to pursue what they thought was important, even, you know, while being having things thrown at them and being thrown in jail. Like, what, is, what was their EQ? I don't know what that means anymore. I know that they were smart. I assume their IQ was high. And I, yeah, I would be shocked if it wasn't. But what is the EQ of people who go against the social grain and really upset people? I don't know. I don't even know how to how that question sits. And again, I'm no expert on EQ. I just have never really seen that addressed. Right. I was trying to look up before because you said something about um, intelligence being associated with higher quality mental health. And I think part of the reason that, that um, I, I gave the emotional intelligence hypothesis, if you want to call it that, more credence or credence was that uh, there was some claim floating around that people with high IQ actually experience, you know, more severe instances of mental health related issues than people lower, I guess. Um, and I was just Googling that before and it turns out that that's apparently you know, also very dubious. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting conversation for sure, but I don't think that the data pans out in support of the emotional intelligence either. Yeah. I think, um, 
Um, I just uh, had a conversation with uh, one of the most famous IQ researchers in the world, Dr. Richard Lin. Uh, it's not out yet, but Dr. Lin pointed out that um, um, women and, and men, boys and girls, have the same IQ patterns up until about the age of 16, and then women's begin to taper off, but men's continue to grow for quite a bit of time afterwards. And men end up with about a four-point IQ difference, uh, higher, four-point IQ, higher IQ on average than women do. And, you know, that's not insignificant, right? That's not, that's pretty similar to the difference between East Asians and Caucasians. And if you look at the income between East Asians and Caucasians, it's quite a bit. Plus, East Asians tend to have higher IQ in particularly productive areas, engineering, spatial reasoning, and so on. But, um, and so when the IQ stuff came out, there were certain groups who didn't do as well. Blacks, Hispanics, Native uh, Indians, uh, Sub-Saharan Africans, and women. Again, the gap with women is much smaller than most of these other groups. And then, of course, with regards to IQ, the fact that the bell curve for men is flatter, right? There are fewer men around the average and more men at the extremes of high and very high and very low intelligence. Also explains, goes a lot to, to a long way towards explaining why there are so many fewer women at the highest levels of human achievement. And the lowest levels of human achievement have fewer women too. I don't know. I mean, it's a pretty good, pretty good cluster to stick around in the middle. It's uh, quite a gamble being a guy, right? Yeah. It's either like, well, there's a lot more 12s and a lot more snake eyes going on when the guys roll the dice as far as brains go. Right. And so it just is interesting to me that within a year or so of IQ explaining a whole bunch of social phenomena that hitherto have been very puzzling to people. And if you think about it, of course, I mean, the, the, the bell curve is over 20 years old now, so 22 years old. And the bell curve was entirely predictive. In other words, the bell curve said, we don't know how to budge IQ, so Head Start isn't going to work. $100 billion plus later, hasn't worked. The bell curve would say that if you want more blacks and Hispanics in colleges, then either they're going to fail a lot more or the standards of those colleges are going to have to enormously decline in order to pass them. Right. Right. And, and you, we can sort of go on and on with all this kind of stuff, right? But it has enormous predictive power. So when the power of IQ came out, it created, in my mind, a vacuum wherein people needed something else to hold on to because they couldn't do that well in the IQ tests. And magically, here comes EQ. <laughs> so that people don't have to feel bad. Right. And they don't worry, they've got a backup emergency alternative intelligence. But EQ to me is very aptly explained by IQ. It just doesn't have this subjectivist thing. And of course, the promise, you know, the, the, the other thing that happened was, of course, that people used to make a lot of money selling has how to improve your IQ, right? The baby Mozart tapes and all that stuff. Yeah, all this stuff that, that you know, they've had to give refunds is all a bunch of bullshit, right? You can't raise IQ. Can't raise IQ. Now, 
again, I think peaceful parenting and it will help because that's an untried experiment for the most part. Right. And uh, also, um, you know, more breastfeeding will will certainly help. And anyway, so there, but in general, right? Not nothing the government's doing is going to raise IQ, right? Basically, the opposite of everything we've been doing the last couple of decades. <laughs> right, right, right. And so there was a huge industry called "We're going to make your kids smarter," right? And the IQ books came out in the early '90s, and then they were validated by the American Psychological Association. You can't change IQ, can't improve it, can't. And uh, next thing you know, look, there's a whole industry which has invented something new called EQ that you can improve for a price. Right? That just, that smells so bogus to me. That smell, it just it doesn't even pass the smell test. Oh, we can't sell IQ anymore because, hey, let's, let's, we'll switch letters. Now we've got something called EQ and that's really, really important and, and we can totally help you raise that for money. Right. Um, I have uh, some, you know, again, pursue self-knowledge, and that's great, a wonderful, wonderful thing. But um, to me, the pursuit of self-knowledge is, you know, I mean, it's therapy plus journaling plus an intense examination of your relationships and uh, with reference to objective values and so on. I don't, again, what do I know about EQ and its promises and so on, but doesn't seem to be involved in that it seems to be one of these quick easy fixies right yeah uh i got sucked into it a little bit because i I always had a a slight uh insecurity around my intelligence so i I guess i kind of got pulled into the lure of oh this shiny alternative (laughs) yeah i can feel smart without the the challenges of objective testing Right. right 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 Yeah, and intelligence is one of these things that it, you know, I, I, I always some, I always somewhat feel it's like if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're right. Yes, yes, I agree. I mean, if if you just assume that you're a genius, who knows how far you can go, right? But it, it, it's sort of like the moment you look down. Ah, yes. Yeah. I mean? <laughs> so. Anyway, again, I don't know any sort of final answers or anything like that, but you know, since you asked. Those are my sort of concerns and, and criticisms of it. And look, if if there's someone out there who's a real expert on EQ and, you know, I'm completely wrong about all of this. I know I'm not wrong about some of this data because it's pretty well validated. But, you know, if, if you want to call in and set me straight, um, you know, as people can tell, I'm not an expert on everything. Right. <laughs> so I'm more than happy to, uh, to get feedback from people uh, if they want to call in and set me straight on this. So if there's new data or data that I don't know about. All right. Absolutely. No, I appreciate it. And uh, if I can just say one other thing, um, not to blow too much smoke up your behind, but I've been listening to you for a few years, and uh, I only recently started donating. Um, I felt a little guilty about not doing that before. And I just want to say, and I've heard other callers say this a lot more recently in your show, I really appreciate what you do, and I consider uh, your show, um, I haven't read your writings, but I consider your show to have been pretty, you know, pivotal for me to help formulate some of my ideas and even work through personal issues. So uh, just, you know, thanks for taking me. Thanks for answering my question. And, and thank you for everything that you do. It was my, my great pleasure. Thank you for your support and your, your very kind words. I very much appreciate that. Take care, Steph. Take care, man. All right. Up next is Tariq. He wrote in and said, 
There was a public speech competition in my college a couple of weeks back, and before going up, they had to know exactly what I wanted to talk about. I introduced peaceful parenting and started explaining how to have a conversation with your child and not to spank. The judges mocked me and said I had no idea how parenting works and said, let's see how you will do when you have children of your own in a satirical manner. I knew it would be a difficult topic to discuss, but not that I would receive such extreme rejection. So how else can I introduce people to peaceful parenting and at least get them to listen to the other side? That's from Tariq, and the added caveat is that he lives in the Middle East. Yes, hello. Hello, how you doing? Uh, fine, thank you. How about yourself? I'm very well, thank you. So, Tariq, I, I, please tell me if I'm like totally whiting up that name for you. How, how do you pronounce it? Uh, uh, you can say Tariq. Yeah, I think that's Tarek. the best way. Okay. Yeah. Tarek. Rhymes with Dalek. Okay, Tarek. <laughs> um, so how how did you, I got to ask, man, how you're Middle East and all, how, how did you come about the peaceful parenting stuff and what made you think of putting it forward as a speech? Well, uh, I've been listening to your show for uh, two years now. And uh, I know that uh, here in the Middle East, we don't have the best uh, representation so I don't know what, what you think of me or the place over here. But well, after I, 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 I try not to think of, of places in general. You know, I, I, I can tell you already I like you and I'm really going to enjoy this conversation. So I'm very glad you're calling in. <laughs> okay, thank you. So I found out about your channel uh, on YouTube. So I started listening to you. And I thought, you know, uh, I still haven't lost hope here in the Middle East. And a lot of people do have intelligent conversations, but uh, that's not the norm. So I thought, uh, how is the best way to increase it? How can I help the community over here? So I thought of peaceful parenting. Right. Uh, as, well as, other, uh, as well as other things that you've talked about. But I felt that uh, peaceful parenting uh, is one of the more important things, especially in this culture, where spanking is a uh, norm. Well, and, and more than the sort of spot on the butt that a lot of Western people think of in terms of spanking. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll go I just mean so, but it's more like hitting, like out, out and out hitting, right? Uh, well, not uh, more, more of uh, hitting, but not, not really harming. More maybe ab uh, shouting at, abusing, uh, vo verbal abuse. Is it, is it bare butt? Spanking? Uh, well, we have different forms. Usually it's with the, the slippers on the feet. You know, hold your feet up oh. and hit you with your slippers. And it's a bit different, but the same, same outcome. And the goal, of course, is not to, to damage the child's body, but yeah. to sort of startle and, and frighten the, the child, right? Yeah, exactly. Just to discipline him. What people say and is what, like... what are the sort of... Sorry to interrupt, but Tariq, what, what yeah. are the... What, are the uh, what, what would cause these kinds of punishments in a family? Now, I've had these conversations with my friends and asked them how, would, how are they spanked or hit. Now, a lot of them only said we would be hit if, our, if we hit our uh, siblings. So that's uh, in my case as well. Like, the only time I would be hit if I hit my brother or sister. Other than that, I wouldn't be hit. However, in other cases, or what the norm is, any disciplinary action, j just to discipline the child, he would be hit. Right, yeah. right. And um, 
what about in terms of religious instruction? How is that um, enforced or how is the discipline applied there? Uh, there's uh, this known saying in Arabic which roughly tr translates as uh, teach your kid for seven years and then discipline him for seven years and then befriend him for seven years. So by the age of until he's seven, you teach him. Then you uh, discipline him for the next seven till he's 14. Then after mm. that, you befriend him like he's an adult now. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. And um, I mean, I know when I was a kid, going to church was uh, generally not one of my favorite things to do, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. um, but with regards to mosques and, and attendance and prayers and so on, how is that enforced? Uh, well, it depends. It varies quite a lot from uh, country to country, obviously. But uh, like uh, it's, I don't know how to say it. Uh, it's uh, like it's it's a lot less than it used to be. Back in the day, probably like thirty years back, it's it's a lot less nowadays. Oh, okay, that's uh, that's good to hear. Yeah. So, can you tell me a little bit about the circumstances of the speech and and who you were giving it to? Well, I didn't actually have the chance before because, as I said, uh, to give the speech, I had to introduce my topic, and only certain topics were uh, accepted, and uh, furthermore, uh, were taken. So, uh, what ha happens actually before the speech happens? There was like a private sitting, and the candidates who wanted to speak introduced their topics. And only a selected couple were chosen to go on with it. Uh, so if you want to know what other topics that were uh, introduced, like other topics that people talked about was uh, global warming, pollution, and self-esteem, and that other stuff. Right, right, okay. And when, uh, so what was the sequence that happened? So you said, I want to talk about not spanking and peaceful parenting? And then what happened? Yeah. So what happens is uh, I sit in front of a couple of uh, judges, and then they give me a period of one to two minutes to speak and introduce my topic. So I uh, introduced that. So uh, uh, some judges were like, yeah, that's a quite uh, interesting uh, point of view, while others were like totally, uh, you're talking nonsense. You're only 23 years old. You have, you have no idea how parenting works. and We'll see how you do when you get your children. Right, right, okay. Yeah. Well, um, it's, it, you, your question is sort of what what can you do to try and advance these ideas in, in your culture, is that right? Exactly, exactly. Well, to me, there's sort of two prongs to the better treatment of children. And, you know, I mean, the, the question is, you know, if I'm so much into peaceful parenting, why don't I just only do peaceful parenting and not sort of the other philosophical stuff? Well, because because there's, there's to me, there's these two prongs. And the more the, the one prong is that the more irrational or anti-empirical or anti-common sense a society's beliefs are, the more aggressive it needs to be with its children. So it's pretty easy I'm, I'm sorry I won't use a myth from your culture. I'm sure there's an equivalent one. But it's pretty easy to convince a three-year-old that there's such a thing as Santa Claus, right? Mm -hmm. But it's pretty hard to convince a 13-year-old that there's such a thing as Santa Claus. 
because the 13 year old can, you know, think for themselves and reason through it and recognize that there's not yeah. a guy going all over the place with a red nosed reindeer faster than what would cause something to burn up in the atmosphere and going down every chimney and like, it, <clears throat> and so the more irrational, if you really desperately need your 13 year old to believe in Santa Claus, you have to get pretty aggressive because reality kind of, and common sense and thinking for yourself kind of disproves that there's a Santa Claus. So if you really desperately need your 13 year old to believe in Santa Claus, you've got to threaten them. You've got to yell at them. You've got to call them bad. If they don't, you've got to, you know, really escalate to get them to claim to believe in, in such stuff. Right. And so to me, if a society's beliefs, if society's beliefs are very anti-rational, then it is necessary, and, and moral, right? And anti-rational and moral, which tends to go hand in hand. Then it has to be aggressive towards its children because the children don't really believe what's going on, like what's being, what is being discussed. And this is why irrational belief structures tend to have very aggressive consequences for failing to believe in them. Like, don't pay your taxes and you go to jail. Don't believe in a particular deity, you go to hell or you're ostracized by your community or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so when it comes to the Middle East, and look, I mean, I'm certainly not trying, I'm not going to try and create some false dichotomy here where Western philosophy is super rational and Middle Eastern philosophy is just crazy. Because, you know, trust me, I, you know, you, you probably see a lot of craziness in your culture. I know I see a lot of craziness in my culture. Um, the, the, the craziness in the West has to do with, you know, a lot of anti-white hatred and a lot of subjectivism, a lot of relativism, and a lot of the hysteria that comes out of people who've let go of any kind of rational and empirical common sense. So... In the West, I'm sort of fighting the, you know, the, 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 the bad ideas in the West. And as people in the West let go of bad ideas and embrace more sensible ideas, then they don't have to be as aggressive with their children. I don't need to be aggressive with my daughter because I'm not teaching her anything that's fundamentally not true or anything that's not true. And so the, the more that society embraces reason and evidence the less aggressive it needs to be with its children. So promoting critical thinking is synonymous with promoting peaceful parenting. The more sensible things you believe, the less aggressive you have to be with your children because you have reality backing you up, so you don't need to be aggressive. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that makes uh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Now... So that's sort of the one prong, which is to try and convince people of more rational ideas. The second is, you know, as explosive, if not more explosive, which is to promote what I have called the voluntary family, which is um, do not spend time with your family of origin because of irrational obligations or duty or, you know, that that... Spend time with your family of origin because you love them, because they listen, because they're good people. They don't have to be perfect people. Lord knows nobody is. 
But the promotion of voluntarism, or another way of putting it is called the privatization of the family, uh, voluntarism is quality. Like, you know, if, if the government runs the post office and you don't have any choice about how you send your mail, then the post office isn't going to have a lot of quality because there's no voluntarism, there's no choice in it. You know, as I talked about in the last show, if you're in the Soviet Union and you run the local restaurant and everyone has to eat there or they pay for the food whether they go or not, then you're just not going to be that interested in having great service and great food because nobody has any choice. So where there, where there is no choice, there can be no quality in relationships. And so the promotion of spend time with your family because they're good people and because you love them means that the people who are good to their children will do very well and the people who are mean or vicious or abusive or neglectful of their children will not do as well. And so promoting spending time with people based upon virtue rather than based upon accidents of history is, um, is very important. And then, of course, you need the actual methodologies of here's what you do instead of. Like once you are telling mostly sensible things to your kids and once, you know, they understand that they don't, you don't expect them to spend time with you when they grow up just because you're their parent, but you have to earn their love and respect and time with you. Then there's the practical, you know, okay, so if I don't hit my kids, well, what do I do? Well, you... You reason with them the way that you would reason with a friend. You know, if you have a disagreement about whether to go to the cinema or the theater with your friend, you don't hit their feet with a slipper until they, <laughs> they agree to go with you to the theater, right? You, you try and find ways to compromise. You, you reason with them. And uh, that prepares them for life in a rational society, which is why all of this stuff has to kind of work. Not everyone has to do every part of it, but it, it works best when it all works together. Because if you live in a truly insane society, I'm not saying you do, but if, if you did live in a truly insane society, training your children for sanity would be setting them up for failure, right? And so uh, th th those would be the things that I would promote, you know, rational thinking, critical thinking, the voluntary family, and ways to, to reason with your children instead of hitting them. I think those uh, are the fastest and best ways to uh, spread the ideals. But it is, you know, it's a slow and, and difficult process, to put it mildly. Uh -huh. So uh, I'll, I'll just speak from the other side point. As, sure. uh, uh, when you hit your child, he's disciplined right away, and he like knows that, that what's wrong is wrong because he's being hit about it. But uh, when you try to reason, how can you, they say, like, how can you reason with... Uh, a five-year-old or a six-year-old who doesn't know right from wrong, you know, it's like speaking with a, I don't know, a low IQ or person. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So that's the point they they go about. All right. So what I would say to that is, first of all, when you hit a child, you're not teaching them right and wrong. You, all you're teaching them is that if they do something, they'll get hit, and so they shouldn't do it. All you're teaching them is fear and compliance. They're not teaching them right and wrong at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise, we could turn dogs into moral philosophers when we teach them not to take a crap on the rug by hitting them with a newspaper, right? I mean, aversion training is not philosophical education, right? You could hit someone on the foot with a slipper. You're not teaching them anything other than be afraid of being hit on the foot with a slipper. It's just fear and compliance. It's not, it's not moral instruction. 
the idea that six-year-olds can't be moral? All morality is, is universalization. That's all morality is, right? Which is why it's the first word in my book on ethics, universally preferable behavior, which people can get at freedomainradio.com slash free. It's just universalization. Now, children can start universalizing in their minds, in their concepts, at seven or eight months of age, not years, months. Wow. The first time that a child recognizes a new chair as a chair, they're able to do morality because they've already universalized. I mean, very, you know, the, the first stage towards morality is recognizing that other people have once just like you do, which is basic empathy. And it's also having a time preference that stretches beyond the moment, right? So, you know, with my daughter, when it came to sharing, it was pretty easy to get her to, to share because I would ask her to share a little bite of whatever it was she was having and she would say no. <laughs> right, because she was a kid, right? She was a little kid. She'd say no. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, okay. She knew that I wanted it. She knew that she wanted it. She just wanted it for herself. And I said, okay. So is that the rule now, that whenever we have a treat, we don't share? Nobody has to share. And then she, like, like her hand would freeze <laughs> <laughs> the little, like, right in front of her mouth. And she'd be like, you could see gears beginning to turn. Oh, no. Wait a minute. Is this going to be good for me? Like she's still. Is this going to be good for me or bad for me? Which is fine. You know, it's a good, good place to start. But is that the rule? Is that the rule where? Because you know, she knows that I'm going to have some treat in the near future, and if the rule is we don't share, then I'm not going to have to share my treat. So she's thinking about the future now. Again, it's still self-advantage, which again, it's not the end of the world. It's not a bad place to start. So the question then she has is that if, if she says, yes, we don't have to share anymore, she knows I'm going to hold her to it in the future. So she gets to not share her treat, but in the future, she knows I don't have to share my treats. And in general, she was like, fine, you know, bake up a little piece of her treat and give it to me grudgingly, You're like, fine, you know. And that's fine, you know, a, I have no problem with that, you know, it's a, it's a process, right? I mean, and, and I still uh, sometimes uh, forget these things as well. So, so there's, it's just, all it is is universalization. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, if, I don't know, if, if some kid's snappy at me, I would say, okay, so is this, do we just get to be snappy with each other when we're upset? Is that the rule? What, what is the rule, right? And this is standard, this is not even me, right? This is way before me, this is... Kant's categorical imperative, which is you act, how would you act if your action created a general rule for, that everyone had to follow? Right? So if you go around stealing stuff, what if everyone stole? Well, that'd be nothing, nothing for you to steal because nobody would ever produce anything. It couldn't be sustained, right? Right. And so children, I mean, I started doing this with my daughter around two. She was perfectly able to grasp it. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, she's smarter than your average bear, so maybe some kids would have to wait till two and a half. I don't know, right? But the moment they can universalize, then they can start processing morality and um, all of that stuff. If you did, if I just hit her on the foot, what would I? 
I'm not teaching or anything. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot to to take in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and listen, um, is, do you know anyone in your neck of the woods who is interested in these ideas? Oh yeah, oh yeah, a couple of uh, a couple of my friends. I try to talk about uh, a lot of these uh, topics with my friends. Now some of them uh, take it with a grain of salt, and some of them like uh, have like no, just just rejection. Right. So, uh, so so this is like one of the topics, but. But I'm trying to think like you can't just go in uh, full throttle with uh, the all of these topics. So like, uh, what, what would you suggest? Like other topics that would be uh, easier to to be accepted uh, over here. Ah, uh, well, you know, you're uh, <clears throat> you're asking for a lot of detail <laughs> from a guy who's only been to the Middle East a couple of times. So, um, do you, do you think that there are well, you know, well, I guess you could say, I mean, as far as I understand it, people in the Middle East, and I'm, I stand shoulder to shoulder with them on this, people in the Middle East, you know, not particularly happy with Western imperialism, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is like one of the, one of the other uh, problems I'm having whenever I bring such uh, peaceful parenting ideas. They're like, yeah, you with your Western ideas that just don't work. You know, it's like the, the, the it's like really, really weird. Like one of the things is uh, like uh, some of the same same uh, things like in the, when you were talking, for instance, uh, about the uh, Crusades, it's like when you talked about them and then you talked about the uh, slave traders, the Arab slave traders, like over uh, what we are taught here in books is the other way around. It's like. Yeah, the Arabs were, Arab Navy was actually protecting the uh, villages, the, the European villages. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all, so all the Muslims went to Vienna as a preemptive way of preventing the Europeans from going into the Middle East. Yeah, look, and, and, and you and I, I'm sure, would be very much on the same page as far as this goes, that I don't like Western imperialism, and I don't like Middle Eastern imperialism, and I don't like African imperialism, and the whole damn thing is horrible. And, um, you know, right now, of course, uh, it is the case that, you know, uh, you know, I mean, there's a big topic and all right. But, you know, the, the migrants, the, the, the Islamic, largely Islamic migrants coming into Europe. Um, man, I mean, do Europeans not have any idea the degree to which Europe and America have completely screwed around with the Middle East for what going on? at least 100 years now. Yeah. And um, it's easier to see the faults in our enemies than in ourselves. That's a pretty... And this is true for every... I think it's true for most people. And so you can say to people, well, what is it that you really dislike about Western imperialism? Right? There's a lot to dislike about Western imperialism, right? The arrogance, the brutality, the the cowardice, you know, it's all about dropping bombs from the air and all that, right? Yeah. And it's brutal. And those same principles of the initiation of force are also present in the Middle East within countries within the Middle East, right? And so if, if you can sort of say, well, what is it about Western imperialism that is so horrible? You can find some of those self-same principles in Middle Eastern governments as well, and it can be a stepping stone, it, again, it's easier to identify the evils of your enemies, but 
when you can, then, you know, my particular approach has been, well, I dislike these things in other cultures, but I can't do much about other cultures. But if I dislike these things in other cultures, and then I see echoes of them in my own culture, well, there's more I can do about my own culture than about other people's cultures, you know, language barriers and cultural barriers and so on. So right. those would be uh, maybe helpful approaches. Right, right. Yeah. All right. And by the way, good job. <laughs> good job. I mean, good job. Uh, it's it's a really, you know, and I, I, I appreciate you calling in for so many reasons, but, but one of them in particular is that you're saying that in the Middle East there is some lessening of harshness towards kids. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that is... That is fantastic. That is fantastic to hear. Yeah, and I'm trying to advocate more of more of that. More, and that's what I'm thinking about. Is like, if the next generation is being brought up in a more peaceful manner, probably, uh, hopefully, the entire uh, uh, entire region becomes more peaceful. Like, that's what I'm thinking for the, in the long run. Like, that's what I'm trying to achieve. You know, uh, because a lot of times what you hear on news and all of that. You start losing hope, especially in this region. But then again, I try my best to see, advocate these ideas of peaceful parenting. I think that uh, hopefully the next generation will have a better life, you know, more peaceful. What? Uh, and if uh, you may know, may not know this, but I've I've, always, I've had some curiosity. What is the perception in the Middle East of what is going on with ISIS or? Or ISIL. What what is the view of of this group? Oh yeah, they're like uh, uh, the worst people ever. Like they're we hate them more than the West does, especially in the uh, media. Yeah, they're like the enemy number one. Right. Which, yeah. Which is yeah. I mean, it's got to be pretty. Uh, people in America are scared of ISIS, and there's like a whole ocean between America and ISIS. I mean, man, in the Middle East. I, I'd be pretty jumpy about these lunatics. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, like the, because because they, if you actually look at the numbers, they kill more Muslims than uh, Christians. Maybe because of the location, but like they're they're killing everyone. So it's it's not about their religion. It's like just lunatics. Right, right. Yeah. And 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 the other thing too, of course, because they're calling themselves Muslims, it's not exactly great for PR, right? <laughs> oh yeah, which is a really interesting uh, topic, which is a whole other thing, it's like how they call themselves uh, Muslim, while uh, in the Islamic teachings, like you shouldn't even, like uh, in Islamic teaching, you shouldn't even cut down a tree, it's like that's how uh, peaceful you should try to be, and they're like... Well, oh come on, I mean there's there's some pretty warlike stuff. In, yeah. And and listen, there is in the Old Testament and even some of the New Testament as well. So it's not like Judaism or, or Christianity is free of this stuff. But there's some pretty warlike stuff in the Hadiths and in the Quran. And certainly looking at the life of the Prophet, there's some pretty warlike stuff, right? Yeah, there is. So uh, it's like uh, how you interpret it, how you interpret whatever you read. So they, uh, the, what ISIS and other terrorists go about, it's like yeah, war and jihad and whatever. And uh, while other most most other people like think about no, that's not it's not the way it's gonna work, especially these days. Like, uh, but they're the they're they're going to, like the 
the ISIS guys are going to the original texts and not like they're taking it pretty raw from the original texts. And of course, they're not they're ignoring a whole bunch of stuff and they're focusing on some particular texts. But I mean, those texts do exist, right? I mean, so it's not like that they're obviously not representative of the vast majority of Muslims. But they're also not way off book if you just look at particular texts. Is that, again, you know a bit more about it than I do, but that's sort of my understanding. Yeah, they take a, like a specific text just to please, uh, just to get some audience. Like they can't just come up with some uh, wacko ideas. Nobody would follow them. So they try to uh, take whatever they find and then twist it into their own uh, words. Not their own words, but their own uh, interpretation. And then to get to get some audience to follow them, and that's right. that's how they work. And this is the insane thing. I get. I don't know if you guys are watching. Do, do you know people who are they watching any of the U.S. presidential debates? Uh, yeah, yeah. Especially like uh, only what what you find on mainstream, not the actual debates. Like they know who Trump is because his name, you know, echoes throughout the media. Right. Yeah. But I just, you know, I, this is the, to me, this, the astounding thing. Uh, and this is true of all of the, I, I don't know much about what the Democrats are talking about, but with the Republicans, it's like, well, we bombed the living crap out of Iraq and that produced a power vacuum. And now ISIS has rushed in, who is, you know, arguably a lot worse than Saddam Hussein ever was. But don't worry, once we bomb ISIS, everything's going to be better. And it's like, didn't we just do this exact same thing and got a, a worse outcome? How on earth is it going to be different the next time? <laughs> yeah, which is uh, really interesting. And that's it's even... A complete failure to learn any... And it's a complete failure of pattern recognition. Oh, yeah. And that even fills the even more hate to the West. Like a lot of people... When they hear what uh, Trump says, banning all Muslims or uh, killing uh, the terrorists and their family, that just creates even more hate. Like, how is that going to fix anything? Well, um, the problem is, of course, that the, the, the Muslims can't be vetted, right? And there is, look, there is a lot of hatred for America in the Middle East. And that I'm not trying to say that's all irrational, but there is, right? Mm, mm. And so, you know, when you're in a significant conflict with an entire region, which the West has been, tragically, horrifyingly, horribly, with the Middle East for decades and decades, you can't bring people in, especially young military-aged men who you cannot vet. You, you can't bring them into your country, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the example, which is a very Western example that I've given before, is, you know, if if if... England is at war with Germany. They can't let they can't let three hundred thousand young German age men into the country. Yeah, what I find really interesting as well is uh, the love hate relationship that a lot of uh, people here have with the West. It's like if you're actually your name is John and you're blue eyed, you're gonna find the job so uh, easier than any uh, dark haired, dark skinned uh, guy mm. called. Uh, Tarek, for instance, it's like, right. yeah, it's like they have this fantasy idea about the states and how they're everybody's, you know, really smart and everything's uh, follows a correct system. However, then again, it's like they hate it for the wars they, that that are reached. So it's like anybody in my age would would, would like love to go to uh, Europe or the states just to study over there because of the high standards of education you can get. 
So right. it's, it's really a love-hate relationship. Well, you know, and, and the, my understanding, it's a bit of a cliche, but my understanding is that in the Middle East, it's not like you hate every American. It's, it's the policies of the American government that have wreaked such havoc and destruction in the region. And there is, of course, you know, I mean, that, that's the, you know, this is the odd thing where, you know, the West is supposed to be so racist and, and yet, you know, every race wants to come. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what? P pick one, you know, pick one. Just stop confusing everyone. You know, if, if all the races want to come, then it has to be the least racist place on the planet. And uh, therefore, it can't be yelled at as being racist. Anyway, it's just one of these funny things. But with regards to the... Uh, the families. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing. And it's, I don't mean funny, like obviously it's, it's tragic as a whole, but, you know, the family thing is, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak for Donald Trump, but my understanding of, of this perspective goes something like this, that these, uh, these San Bernardino shooters, right, the, the, the people who shot up uh, in, in California, the, the two Muslims, the married couple, um, if it turns out that their families were aiding and abetting them, you like in other words, if these guys were amassing weapons and talking about their plans and the families let it happen or covered it up or whatever it was, then yeah, of course you have to I mean that the, then they're accomplices to mass murder, right? And so of course you would go after that. And when it came to targeting bin Laden, you know, this is the funny thing, this is comedian, I guess comedian, John Oliver was shocked and appalled that, that Trump talked about going after people's families, but at the same time, that's... I mean, they went after bin Laden and his family, and everybody seemed fine with that. And people say, ah, oh, yes, but it might be a war crime. Well, that's not as clear, because the Geneva Convention, which defines war crimes, generally only applies to state actors, to state military. Mm. And uh, terrorists aren't really covered by like the moment you don't have a uniform and you're not on a government payroll then the geneva convention doesn't really cover you and so this idea that it would suddenly be a war crime it's like well war is something that is defined by the armies of two nations fighting each other and terrorists are not state actors by definition in general if they are state actors then they are uh, an army not terrorists and then they're covered by the geneva convention so um, I, you know, I don't think people are saying if, if, you know, someone, they're going to go after the, you know, third cousin twice removed of the San Bernardino shooters who's living in Alaska and has never even heard of them. Then it's just, if there are immediate family members who've aided and abetted in the preparation of and commission of these crimes, then those people will be targeted. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's closer to, um, uh, to, to what the perspective is. Yeah. Yeah. And especially about all these uh, terrorist attacks, and uh, I hate it when it's like the terrorists, they go in the name of Islam, and uh, so what uh, the media covers, or the Western media says, is like these Muslim terrorists, and then you see the uh, Middle Eastern uh, Middle Eastern media, they go like, these uh, terrorists, which are against Islam, which do not represent Islam, and, uh, you know, like, just try to ostracize them and showing that they're the worst people and like just make them uh, as part away from Islam as, as they can. So, well, and you know, there's, there's good ways to be able to do that, which is, 
they have to show that there's nothing in the Islamic teachings that could ever justify such an action. But again, I'm no expert on it, but to my understanding, there are things in Islamic teachings that can justify such actions. And of course, the vast majority of Muslims would never even conceive of doing such things. But nonetheless, we, you know, people make this mistake all the time that when there's a particular group that holds an ideology, and I don't mean to re- reduce your religion to an ideology, but I, I mean what I mean by that is it could be communism, it could be fascism, it could be democracy. Or, like when a, there's a group of people who hold a particular ideology, and people say the ideology is really bad, that doesn't mean that everyone who is nominally part of that group is equally bad. It just means those are the teachings. And I'm not trying to compare your belief systems to to Nazism. It's more of an extreme example. But Nazism is a nasty belief system, to put it mildly. And yet, not everyone who was in the Nazi party party was a dedicated Nazi. I mean, some of them did it because they had to. They were forced to. Like everyone, there were lots of people in the Communist Party under Joseph Stalin, who were in the Communist Party because they didn't want to get killed for not joining the Communist Party or for showing hesitation in joining the Communist Party or whatever. And so you can find very nice communists, but communism is a pernicious doctrine. And I think this, I see this happening all the time when people say, well, certain aspects of Islam are very violent. And then people say, well, that doesn't mean that all Muslims are violent. It's like, of course it doesn't, right? Of course. You can't possibly judge, you know, what is it, uh, 1.5 billion? Like, you can't judge everyone and, and, and just say, well, they're all like this because they self-identify as Muslims or Christians or Jews or whatever. But we can criticize the doctrines, right? And that doesn't mean that every person who self-identifies as part of that group believes in every aspect of the doctrine, but we can still criticize the doctrine. Like, I can criticize Christianity without saying that every Christian fully accepts this aspect of Christianity that I'm criticizing. Does that make any sense? Um, yeah, I, I kind of get your point, but not uh, completely. Well, so in Islam... In general, and certainly as far as I understand it under Sharia law, people who don't practice Islam are not the equal of those who do. Yeah, okay. Right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Right, so so that's a problem, right? Now, in, in Christianity, atheists can be put to death. I criticize that aspect of Christianity. Now... I certainly don't believe that every Christian wants to put me to death. I understand that, right? So I'm not talking about every individual Christian. I'm talking about the belief system. Yeah, I get you. And so, yeah, so if in Islam, of course, you know, as you know, the punishment for apostasy or for leaving Islam is what? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really deep is, topic. Is what? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't quite catch that there, my friend. What is it again? Uh... <laughs> just uh, well the short answer is uh, death but not really you know yeah well see i don't i don't like death with an asterisk <laughs> you know what i mean like I, that that i have a problem with that as you know it's it says death but don't worry there's some fine print it's like 
I'd rather that was no death and no fine print rather than death and fine print. But please go ahead, make your case. Yeah, uh, just to make my case. Uh, now, as you said, uh, why why is it death? Like apostasy is death, but not like just say that you're not a Muslim anymore. It's like yeah, off with his head. It doesn't go like that. And now, if you go back to history and uh, the times of uh, Prophet Muhammad, uh, what uh, like we taught is that okay, there were some uh, some people who left Islam, and uh, he he wasn't who wasn't uh, killed. He wasn't killed. And what uh, what we're taught is that uh, uh, Prophet Muhammad said, "If uh, I don't want to be known as the person who kills my friends." So uh, in history, what actually happened was that only people who uh, left Islam and started fighting the Muslims were the ones who were killed. So if you left Islam and you didn't fight it, then uh, you were left to live. That's uh, what we're taught. Right. And is that how Sharia law is implemented these days, that if you decide not to become a Muslim, you're left alone? Uh, it depends. It always depends on where, which country you're living in. And there are particular religious taxes for non-Muslims, right? Particularly, of course, Christians and Jews. Uh, yeah, but uh, if you think about the Sharia law itself, uh, even Muslims have to pay the zakat, which is a sort of a tax which goes to the uh, poor. Which is, uh, when you think about it, it's like uh, small details like, if you're a Muslim, you have to pay this. If you're a non-Muslim, you have to pay that, which is uh, like a very historical uh, diff- uh, way. Uh, how do you put it? Uh, it's like it's, uh, when people talk about Sharia a lot, it's like uh, they only look at the how how do they implement the punishments. It's it's like supposed supposedly uh, supposed to be like an entire way of life, not only implementing laws and and punishing people. So you can't just take one, that's the problem is when uh, the fundamentalists, they only take one part of it and try to implement it. But it doesn't work like that. You have to think of it as an entire, entirety, if, if, you, if you get me. It's like, no, no, I understand that. But, you know, and th- this, is, this is the challenge of, to me, religious belief systems as a whole, right? Which is that it takes a certain amount of intelligence, to be able to sift through the complexities of sometimes contradictory belief systems, right? I mean, in Islam, as in other religions, there's a lot of contradictory stuff. And it takes a certain amount of intelligence to say, well, you know, there's big picture stuff. You've got to balance this with this. And, you know, this is allegorical, but this is literal. I mean, it takes and, – and the problem is, is that, as you know, the <laughs> – Intelligence is not evenly distributed among the population, right? Yeah. yeah. And so there are going to be people of lesser intelligence, and lesser intelligence is often associated with greater ferocity, who are going to not really get into all of the big balancing complexity stuff, but are going to fixate on something that is probably closer to their emotional makeup, maybe their childhood trauma or whatever, and say... Well, I'm full of rage, and here's an angry passage. And that's, you see, to me, the the, the philosophy, right, versus, I've just been, I'm doing research for an introduction to Aristotle, and I really want to, of course, get across to the Western listeners the degree to which we have Aristotle, because of you lovely 
Arabs and and uh, uh, um, uh, Muslims and Middle Easterners who saved Western philosophy from the fall of of Rome and so on. But um, philosophy can't have these contradictions in it, right? It can't be like, well, you can focus on this, which is very aggressive, or there's this part, which is very peaceful. That can't, like, it takes religion to have these kinds of contradictory statements or principles or commandments. Philosophy doesn't have the luxury of allowing for these kinds of contradictions. And what that means to me is that philosophy is more stable when it falls into the hands of the less intelligent because it has to be more consistent. That's the whole point. Like, it's like a big scientific theory. The pieces all have to hang together and be consistent. And so I, for more intelligent people, there's lots of great stuff that they can get out of religious teachings. My concern is not with the more intelligent and sophisticated people of any religious persuasion. It's with the less intelligent and often more aggressive. Lower intelligence is often, often coincides with higher levels of aggression. And so you, you're obviously a very intelligent fellow, and I can't imagine that you would uh, you know, you'd gravitate towards the more, the more aggressive aspects of a belief system and, and act that out. And so you would not be my particular concern. My concern is among all irrational or contradictory belief systems, the degree to which it can appeal to some of the worst instincts of the less intelligent. And because there isn't this demand for consistency, it keeps sophisticated people naturally relatively peaceful because they're more intelligent, but it doesn't do a lot to block the aggression of the less intelligent because there's a lot they can find to justify how they feel or or what they want to do, if that makes sense. Wow, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, I never thought of it in that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because uh, because this question, these questions uh, come up quite a lot. Like, well, uh, I wouldn't uh, hurt anyone even if he disagrees with what I believe or any idea. Like, I, I would never think of that. Uh, no, and and yeah. and you can find the justification in in the the statement in Islamic texts, which is that there that there shall be no compulsion in the realm of belief. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Then when you talk about the less intelligent people and how they hold whatever they believe in, uh, and what how they in, uh, try to uh, justify it by whatever text they pull out, which uh, yeah, yeah, it's like uh, kind of like makes sense now. Can you can I ask you one other question if you don't mind? I appreciate Please. Please. I appreciate this conversation. What do I'm gonna, you can't speak for the Middle East. So let me let me ask you this. How do you view Western feminism? Uh, Western feminism. Yeah, well, uh, it's kind of uh, exaggerated. Actually, there is like uh, some sort of uh, feminist movement here. But uh, like, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's not the same uh, level as in the West. But yeah, it just just doesn't uh, make sense. It just doesn't make. I I couldn't like understand it. I could. I don't know. What, really what doesn't make idea. what doesn't make sense? Just uh, you know, help me understand what doesn't make sense. It's like okay, uh, women. Uh, I don't know what exactly uh, feminist movements want or what their beliefs are. It's like okay, women want their independent independence 
from men and they want to lead. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the feminist movements exactly are uh, provocating for. So uh, it's like, uh, if, uh, if women are, they want their uh, independence, okay, like, uh, uh, quite, if you look at some, it's like, uh, let me just uh, think of a put proper sentence just rambling on. It's like, okay, women, like, uh, what I think is right is like women do, they do have rights, eh? they're just as, uh, oh, uh, yeah, they, they do have right to learn, they do have the right to, uh, they should have the right to do, like, to do whatever they want. But uh, then again, they still, they still, like, uh, need to be, uh, not sure how to put it. Uh, okay, they should they should have their independence, but not like overruling. Uh, it's like they want more rights. It's not they don't want equal rights. They want more rights, which doesn't. Yeah, it's kind sense. of like female supremacy, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, yeah, it shouldn't shouldn't be like that. Yeah, no, I mean it's always sort of struck me like some eighteen year old or nineteen year old kid wants to be completely independent. Of his parents, you know? I've had it with you ruling over me, man. I'm going to be free, independent. But you'll still be paying my visa, right? It's like, <laughs> wait, hang on. Hang on. <laughs> I don't need you, mom and dad. Wait, can you co-sign my loan for this car? Because I don't really have the credit to, right? And I need you to pay. Right? And it's like, okay, well, which do you want, right? I mean, if women want to, you know, we don't need men. Okay, well, then stay out of my wallet. Don't stop taking my tax money, right? Stop taking all this stuff from me, right? If you want to be independent, great. You know, if, if there's a patriarchy, how about you boycott the money the patriarchy produces? And if you don't want to boycott the money that the patriarchy produces, then um, don't pretend that you want to be independent of men. Anyway, it's just sort of my particular perspective. But Yeah, so like one, one of the things about uh, feminism or women in general is an uh, Islam the hijab. So you actually like can't force your daughter to wear the hijab. She has to choose it herself because if she doesn't choose it and she forces it, you know, there are quite a lot of, uh, not quite a lot, but there are some women who in front of their family, they wear the hijab and then when they go out alone, they take it off. So uh, what, what use is that? You know? So uh, like you have to think of it intelligently. It's like uh, they have to choose it themselves. So that's a point I wanted to make. And the purpose of the hijab is because, is it because a woman's sexuality is private to her husband and her husband alone? Is that the idea? Yeah, the idea is uh, modesty. You know, uh, when you wear the hijab, you're, you become more modest. And uh, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Okay. Uh, and is there a, any... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, but the hijab, it might be foreign to your, uh, like what you're used to. But when you when you live like in a society where everybody wears the hijab, then you see someone you know like with all her hair out and whatever, you think you, you feel the difference. Feel the difference. Yeah. yeah. But whenever like you go to the Western society, and it's it's the other way around. It's like uh, really uh, weird. It's like everybody's hair out, and then uh, you see a woman with the hijab on, then everybody starts looking at her. So. Right. Right. Yeah. What do you think is uh, going to happen? In um, in Europe, with these, I guess to a large degree, North African migrants and and so on, these people who are, 
Well, a lot of them, of course, are not fleeing war zones or anything. But what do you think is going to happen um, between these these two cultures? Well, I'm pretty sure there will be uh, some sort of uh, clashing and not getting along. But uh, over like here in the Middle East, a lot of like every family probably knows someone who left to live somewhere in the West, the States or Canada or even in Europe. So like people going to live uh, abroad is uh, quite common. But what was really interesting is uh, a lot of scholars were saying that you shouldn't actually go to the West or go to Europe because of, you know, you can't practice the same way that you practice your religion here and over there. So a lot of scholars were against that. And uh, what I think is like, why would you why would you go over there while you can live uh, happily and in uh, and here like in closer countries and uh, a lot say that they can't make a living so that's why if you go to uh, germany and you get you live on social welfare and uh, you live a better life so i the problem is uh, okay if you go live there but can you uh, accumulate is that word like uh, get along with the uh, with the Germans and the German culture, which is quite different from uh, Arab or Islamic culture, I believe so. Yeah. So uh, can you get along with them? That's a question. And uh, will it become like a subculture? Like, will there be a subculture that lives in Europe? Like, I don't know what to say, like uh, the... Yeah, I don't know how it's going to work. Uh, it's really interesting. Well, it's one way of putting it. I mean... I don't know, is there any sense that, you know, the, the Germans, you know, the welfare state is paid for by the Germans, and the people who are coming from the Islamic countries to Germany have never paid into the system. I mean, is there any sense of like, well, that's, that's not how the system is supposed to work. The welfare state is supposed to be there as an emergency safety net for people who've paid into the system. And people who come into the country and go immediately squat on the welfare state, they're taking from the Germans, and they've never contributed anything to the German welfare state. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's uh, almost kind of like abusing the system. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, kind of like abusing the system? No, (laughs) it's abusing the system. Yeah, it is. It's not kind of like, right? It's not very empathetic towards the Germans, right? Which is, you know, that... um, that, you know, if if I go to Japan and immediately sit on their welfare system, I mean, that money is not exactly honorably obtained because it's supposed to be there for emergencies for people who've paid into the system. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, uh, yeah, that's true. But what I find really weird is that, uh, like, I, have, I had a friend who wanted to go to Germany and he applied for the visa. And he was rejected, and he's like actually an educated with a college degree, and he was rejected. So like people with a college degree and want to go through the legal way couldn't make it. However, these immigrants, uh, I don't know, like some people do have uh, educations, while a lot of others don't have educations and they're just uh, going illegally and are getting there. Yeah. So uh, just uh, it's like, how is that going to work? Uh, Badly, <laughs> yeah. Badly, badly is the uh, is the is the answer to that. And why is there is there any conversation among the Muslims in the Middle East or among your friends, where basically it's saying, well, why why Europe? I mean, why are Christians being nicer to our fellow Muslims? That why don't we bring them here? 
you know, like in, in Saudi Arabia, they have, you know, these giant 10 cities, right, for the pilgrimages and so on. And they, they why, why, I mean, the, from the outside, right, I mean, this is one of the things that people in the West are not, it, it, look, look at somewhat like, what? Like, which is so, you know, Muslims, you know, generosity and charity and, and kindness are very big um, virtues in uh, Islamic uh, thinking. So why are the Christians taking all of these migrants? Why aren't they going, like, why aren't the Muslim countries opening the borders and saying, no, fellow Muslims who speak our language and have our culture, come to us. Why would you want to go to the Christians? Because we are your fellow Muslims. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, mind-boggling when you put it that way. Yeah, uh, to be honest, I mean, it's, I, it's I like it's like there's answer. a bunch of Christian refugees. Yeah. It's like there's a bunch of Christian refugees right in the middle of Europe, and then they have to take these incredibly risky journeys to go and find refuge in Saudi Arabia. Hmm. It does like this is why a lot of people in the West are like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> What? Why? What? What do you guys know about these migrants that we don't know? Right? I mean, why don't you want them? Uh, that's really well. Um, I I can't I judge the I... migrants in particular, but I can judge. I can judge the Muslims around the migrants who don't want them, and are like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like if it's sort of like uh, the guy whose family has kicked him out. <laughs> it's like I don't know much about him, but I know that his family doesn't want him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't. I I don't. I don't think I have the answer for that. Yeah. Sorry about that, but no, no, it's okay. I wasn't, you know. But what's interesting is you seem a little bit surprised by the question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, because like uh, even before, even before there were all these uh, migrants going to Europe, everybody. Like, as I said before, like, uh, the Western society has, like, higher education, so everybody wants to go uh, study there. So it's always been that uh, going to the West is uh, always a good option, you know, trying to improve your lifestyle. And, like, uh, the West, like, they live on a certain system which appeals to a lot of people here. So, uh, like, for many years, a lot of uh, a lot of people have been trying to go to uh, the states or Europe because of uh, the standard of living is much higher. So not for long. <laughs> <laughs> not for long. Yeah. So uh, with all these, my it's like as I told you, like a lot of my, uh, not a lot, but some friends uh, have tried to go through the legal system and applying for visas, and have been mm -hmm. rejected. So uh, so like people who actually are trying to work for it are being rejected, while others are just you know. Uh, I know they're risking their lives. I don't want to undermine that, but uh, they're risking their lives and going there and they're being accepted, which is uh, weird. Well, it certainly will probably do quite a bit to end Western imperialism when the welfare state collapses because it can't possibly sustain these migrants. I mean, there's, there's no way. There's, there's no way. They can't possibly do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I mean... It's it, like the, you can barely make a welfare state work if everyone's kind of being decent about it and is, is paying in and then only takes it in emergencies. It barely works even then. But when you get people coming in who 
don't speak the language, don't have any cultural acclimatization, uh, don't have the educational standards, may not have the IQ basis to sustain themselves in a high IQ society. And I mean, it's just, it's not, it, it can't, it can't work. And this is like the, and I've been arguing against the welfare state for over 30 years and people have told me that I'm a bad person who hates the poor. It's like, okay, all right, well, let's just see how it works now because it, it can't possibly work. I mean, countries in debt are taking on massive multi-generational financial obligations with incompatible cultures. There's no conceivable way that it can work. Yeah, man. That's really, yeah. They, they, you do have, yeah. That makes sense. So, I mean, imagine if, uh, if uh, you know, I don't know what the equivalent population in Saudi Arabia would be, but you know, imagine if, you know, five million secular leftist bikini-wearing women, all men and women, all surged into Saudi Arabia. I mean, and then went on welfare. I don't know if there is welfare in Saudi Arabia, Qatar maybe, <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, good Lord. Well, the funny thing is, is that the Saudis would just kick them out, right? <laughs> I mean, they just would like, they would, there wouldn't even be any doubt. That's the fun. I mean, this is the thing that I actually have some admiration for in the Islamic culture is like, no, this is our culture. If you come here, we expect you to adapt or you ain't even close to sticking around. And that level of self-confidence in the culture is... Um, Something that the West could use a little bit of, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, as a, like a Westerner coming to the any Arab country, yeah, they they should adapt to the culture. That's expected of them. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. Of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, naturally, it's it's an Islamic culture. It's an Islamic country. And of course, you know, it's almost impossible to for non-Muslims to move to Islamic countries. But anyway, it's it's just weird what's happened to the West. You know, some someday the West will find a middle ground between wanting to rule the entire planet and then just letting anyone swarm into the country. I mean, somewhere in the middle, there's got to be some kind of balance. I hope philosophy can, can lead us there because... Yeah, this is, a, I think it's just going to be a complete disaster. Yeah, I know. But, like, uh, personally, if I would go to live uh, anywhere in Europe, I would respect the European culture uh, as I would, uh, like, uh, as you always say, like, treat people uh, how they treat you, then work off of that. So, Europeans, like, they're very welcoming. So, I would expect, like, whoever goes over there should respect their culture and uh, should accumulate to whatever that to, up to an extent. Right, right. But what will happen is, uh, I, I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen. Well, it's a, a movie I don't want to see, but it looks like I'm not going to have much choice but to watch it. So, All right, listen, I'm gonna, I really, really appreciate the call. Thank you uh, a lot for uh, opening your heart and your mind, and a hugely, you know, massive, massive um, respect for what you're doing with regards to spreading peaceful parenting, Tarak. I mean, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing to hear about. Well, well, thank you, thank you, and uh, well, if it wasn't uh, for your show, I don't think I would have been spreading uh, peaceful parenting. So, uh, all right, thank you. you for Middle that. Eastern outpost. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> that was part of the business plan for this year. We can all go to bed now. <laughs> all right, thanks, man. What, right. what time is it where you are? I can't even imagine. Is it morning? 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, six o'clock and six twenty-five in the morning. Yikes! Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I appreciate you staying I, up I or getting up early. That was a really, really uh, great chat. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Take care. Okay. Bye, bye. All right. Well, up next is Malcolm. Malcolm wrote in and said, "With the high cost of university, Marxist professors and devalued degrees, I'm wondering if there is still value in the university experience." With the world obsessed with credentials, I have a fear of being shut out of potential opportunities. What am I missing if I skip university? That's from Malcolm. Hmm. Hello, Malcolm. What do you think you're taking? Uh, hi, Steph. It's, uh, it's really cool to talk to you. Um, well, uh, I didn't really have a specific... Th- like, I don't have a specific... Um, profession that I would take. I was more interested in kind of, uh, I guess, the classical education. I'm embarrassed to say liberal arts. Um, I, I got a liberal arts degree. I got no problem yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it's something that uh, I started thinking about a lot lately. I'm working as an electrical apprentice right now. And, you right. know, I have a lot of people around me telling me, you know, it's a good job. I'm in a union you know, there's benefits, but it's it's monotonous, and it's um yeah. You know, I'm dealing with uh, bitter union guys, and you know, concrete dust asbestos, and I'm trying to think about you know, kind of try to craft something better with my life. Right. 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 Now, do you have like an ideal sort of occupation or gig uh, that you might want to get to in the future? Well, I'm really interested in. Business and economics, I think. Um, like I, I like reading Milton Friedman for fun, so that should give me a bit of. Oh yeah. Bit of a chick magnet. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great for picking up chicks. And um, also, like, I'm really invested, I guess, in the culture war that's happening. Like, um, you know, so I'm interested in journalism as far as just like the media is so useless. We need people like you that are just, you know opening people's minds up. So that's also something I would think uh, of doing. Right. You mean like sort of uh, some sort of um, alternative media? Yeah. Yeah. No, um, right, right. like uh, the reason I found your show was Bill Whittle is one of my favorites. Ah, we love the bill. Yeah. 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 No, and it's funny, you know, because I was just thinking when you talk about a liberal arts degree and every time I do a show with, Peter Schiff, he says something about liberal arts degrees being useless, and it's like, still have more subscribers than you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. thing. Yeah, although, you know, I think his house is quite a bit, quite a bit bigger than mine, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, do, do, would you take, like, um, literature or history or, like, what, what would you think of Well, um, if, if you had to choose? To be perfectly honest with you, Steph, like, I don't, I, don't, I have a limited understanding of the whole university experience. It's something that I kind of rejected when I was in uh, high school. Mm. Like um, the, the public education system is just so useless. Like I had no idea that I was, you know, interested in, you know, history and philosophy and stuff until I got out in the working world and started finding myself reading and uh, finding them a lot. I hate saying it, but I'm smarter than a lot of the people that are in my social sphere mm-hmm. right no false modesty is a, just a kind of hypocrisy so 
Yeah, that's why Trump's uh, doing so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just so funny. The peop- number of people, anybody says, I'm really successful. I'm like, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I got no, I mean, I, you know, I don't want you to lie to me. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. People just get, oh my goodness, this guy is accurately, has an accurate um, assessment of his own abilities. He's, that's terrible. It's like, what? <laughs> Would you want someone who didn't? I don't know. The false modesty of, this is one thing that drives me nuts about Kasich. Yeah. Is, um, you know, he's like, I can't believe my wife has stayed married to me. She's got so much pace. It's like, dude, come on. Come on. I mean, please don't tell me that your wife is some long-suffering person because then why on earth would I want to have anything to do with you? She knows you a lot better than I do. <laughs> yeah, that's just it. Yeah, that's just... Uh... All right. So, um, if if do you feel that um, a degree is going to give you credibility in the alternative media? In other words, if, like, I've got a master's degree in history, do you think that you would not listen to me if I didn't? Did you even know whether I, like, I don't, like, the people I listen to have no idea what their education is, for, for the most part. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't, I don't, like, oh, wait, I gotta see a resume, right? I mean, just, you know, are you interesting? Do you have good arguments? Do you think for yourself? Do you encourage thinking in others? You know, it's what, you know, it's what matters to me. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think it, it still matters to a lot of people. Um, like, for example, like my dad, he's total autodidact. He's taught himself a lot. He's a very intelligent person. Um, and uh, he can't get hired by big companies because he doesn't have a degree. Like, he, he's into computers. He can do anything, but um, they do, won't take a look at someone like him because he doesn't even have a degree. Like they just, right to save time, I guess. Yeah, no, they probably have a standard, right? Which is that, um, you know, requires bachelor's degree. Or, but would he even want to, I mean, trust me, if he, if he got through that and started to work for these people, he'd go insane. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're doing him a, a service, right? Yeah. What do you mean the crazy woman won't date me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank God, right? Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, 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 if there was a God, I'd get on my knees and thank Him <laughs> every single morning for all the women I wanted to date who said no to me because I've had enough of life experience now to have seen where some of them have ended up. I'm like, oh, Jesus, God, thank you. <laughs> so I should be thank very you. thankful. <laughs> You're very, very thankful. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> Seriously, well, every, every woman who said no to me who isn't who didn't become my wife is like my blessed angel of rejection. Thank God for them. Oh, good. good. <laughs> so, okay, so if you want to go into alternative media, I don't, I don't know that your education is going like formal, whatever it is, right? I don't, th- I don't think that's going to make any difference. Okay. Um, the other aspect, if you want to become an entrepreneur, then. Your custo- if you can provide value to your customers, they don't, they don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, people, I don't think anyone ever said, I'm not buying Apple stock because Steve Jobs doesn't have a degree in computer science. Yeah, fair enough. Um, hmm. But, okay, the, the other um, aspect I was also looking at um, was the actual experience of going to university itself. Uh, you know, it's kind of a rite of passage in Western culture, at least, uh, it appears 
to be, whether or not that's a good thing or not. passage for your liver, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But um, there is like a feeling I have, I don't know if it's rational or not, that, um, you know, a lot of people in my social circle, um, they're not interested in pretty much anything I'm interested in, like any philosophy or history or anything that you, you you talk about in this show. But um, if, you know, it's possible that at university it'd be more of um, intellectually enlightening experience, I guess, even though despite what we see happening Mm. there today, that's. Well, look, I I, I can't, (laughs) you know, the, the, the real political correctness arrived after I left, right? Like I was out of college over 20 years ago, right? So. So I still had a lot of old school. Like I, I was taught. I did nineteenth uh, century poetry. I was taught by a guy who was so old. He was a professor, and he only had a BA. Oh, okay. Right, because now you got to yeah, have a postgraduate like, PhD. Sometimes this guy was so old that he could be a professor with only a bachelor's degree. Wow. <laughs> And he was pretty old, let me tell you that. And, and so I had, like, most of my professors were pretty old. So they all came, and, uh, you know, it was a little bit different. There wasn't quite as much of the hippy-dippy stuff in Canada in the 60s, right? There was more out in Vancouver. But there was a lot of, uh, you know, old-school empiricists uh, who I was, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before. You know, one of the greatest professors I ever had was this uh, woman uh, who taught me the full-year course on Aristotle. And, uh, I mean, she was great. And, uh, but she was, she wasn't old, but she was old school. Like I, I remember, um, you know, some hippy dippy guys started bringing up radical relativism. I mean, she just shot him down like a Messerschmitt on a boatload of refugees. I mean, it was just, <laughs> brutal. I mean, it was just, she was just great. Um, it was like, it was like watching, <laughs> it was like watching Trump make fun of Marco Rubio's water drinking and then tossing the <laughs> bottle with ultimate contempt. Um, and I was just like, I love you. <laughs> I will have your children, Miss Aristotle. I will bear your children. I started writing essays just to go to her office. Like I just write extra essays. You know, we get into some thorny problem with regards to forms. And I, I would just start writing essays. And she'd be like, why did you write this? I'm like, actually, I, I do find, you know, A, I want to be near you. And B, <laughs> I want to, uh, um, uh, it was a really interesting challenge and she taught me a lot like I'd write all these extra essays and I'd go in and she taught me a lot about cutting down arguments believe it or not this is me heavily redacted but um, and that was rare uh, I had one good professor who did actually an excellent Churchill who taught uh, I did a course on the Second World War and he was pretty good um, but uh, you know a, a lot of them were were, were were terrible were pretty terrible hmm and, um, you know, and, and occasionally you'd get the sadistic fire hose of facts guy, you know, like I, I took a course on ancient Rome and this is the guy like you had to, you had to know the sequence of the emperors and you had to know the dates of their reign and you like, you had to know when the laws went through major changes and what, like it was all just like, if I can turn you into the internet, I've considered myself a great educator. <laughs> Uh, and those, the, the sort of stuff yourself with facts guys were just terrible. Yeah. Uh, and it was pretty brutal. And as far as 
quality conversations with my fellow students went? No, not a lot. And, and no. like, I, I wasn't around during the hysterical political correctness stuff. But I will say uh, that um, it was very lefty. Yeah. It was very lefty. It was very lefty. And what would happen is, you know, there's this funny thing that happens when you speak outside of the matrix. And, like, I remember doing a speech. No, it was a speech. There was a question about the fall of Rome, and I gave, I think, a pretty good explanation. And there was this long pause, and then everybody just started laughing and say, wow, you should really be on the floor of the House of Commons. I remember that comment really – like, you should really be in the floor of the Parliament. I can't mean, House of Commons is British. But, like, you should, be, you should be a politician, you know, the way you can synthesize and say this stuff from beginning to end. And so, basically, there was no comment on the content. There was only an appreciation of the form of what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah, total. And so I would not say that I had a lot of quality conversations. A lot of people in college, particularly when it got to the graduate level, were lost people. They were hiding out. They didn't know what they wanted to do with their lives, but they were relatively good at academics. And so they just they kept doing academics because – and a lot of them were actually quite fragile. I actually was quite surprised hmm. to find a lot of them were quite fragile people. I definitely see and, that now. Yeah, they were like they wanted to stay in this giant government-fed amniotic sack of higher education because the alternative was kind of stressful for them, going out into the business world and being in a voluntary situation and testing their market value with productivity and all that kind of stuff. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was not. It was not massively high quality conversations uh, that that I can recall. And there was also, of course, a lot of odd hyper competitiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, because you know everybody knew that if they were going to keep going in academia, they would have to uh, make do with. You know, there were too many people in too few positions, right? Um, you become professors or whatever. And um, so if you're looking for quality conversations, well, I'm still, you know, other than this show and you know, the <laughs> people that we talk to, I don't know where to, where to suggest you go, but I wouldn't necessarily say that going to college. Now, <clears throat> what's happened, of course, since all of this, like since my day, is affirmative action for women and minorities has kicked in big time in a lot of places. And that has fundamentally changed university. And um, I think that has re really changed a lot of um, the standards, really lowered a lot of the standards, naturally, right? Yeah. Like in, in the past in Canada, you used to be able to skip grades. Mm -hmm. And now you're not allowed to skip grades. I don't know the formal reason, but I guarantee you I know the reason for real, <laughs> which is that there'd be a whole bunch of white and oriental kids who'd be skipping grades and a whole bunch of black and Hispanic kids who wouldn't be. Yeah. And so because otherwise everybody would be accused of racism, now no one can skip a grade. How terrible. Mm -hmm. How terrible. Um, 
And of course, college has become exceedingly risky for sexual activity. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have to tell you, like everybody can feel their ball sack going up somewhere around their lungs when they read these stories of, you know, some woman who claims some guy raped her when, you know, even though it's obviously patently false, the guy's life still could be destroyed, right? Yeah, because he catcalled and said hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, you know, she regretted it and then she, you know, she then ended up hanging out with the wrong crowd who convinced her it was rape and started using her to bludgeon men as a whole because of their own pathological hatreds. And, you know, of course, rape does happen on campus. It's rarer on campus than in the general population. And by any historical feminist definition of rapes, it happens as often to men as to women. But um, this unraveling of the compatibility between the genders is, I mean, that is really striking at the root of civilization as a whole. Yeah, and so you know, it's not it's not a fun free bangathon as it used to be. Um, it's pretty risky. It's like uh, like Russian roulette with your balls, right? I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's you know, it might go off, but it also might go off and take your head off as well, right? So yeah, that's become a lot more risky. The political correctness stuff, I think, has become. I think there's a lot more. I had to bite my tongue a lot, of course, in college because it was so relentlessly lefty. But I think now with the political correctness stuff too, like I bit my tongue because I really did. And I would fight sometimes. And sometimes, like I took a whole course on the, called the rise of socialism, the capitalist, or the rise of capitalism, the socialist response. And I, you know, I'd fight sometimes and I'd bite my tongue sometimes. But it was never personal, right? In so far as you know, the the. Ewok-style Marxist professor, you know, would get upset with me and we'd have these conflicts and these clashes. But it was never like, I'm an evil stooge of the capitalist class. But with this political correctness stuff now too, I mean, you are a racist, you are a misogynist, like it's boom, straight to your heart, right? Mm -hmm. And that is, um, that is pretty rough. Do you have any money saved up for this potential endeavor? Yeah, I've, I'm a saver, so I've got, uh, I've got about, well, I've rationed. Don't tell me. Yeah. You've, you've got some decent coin, right, yeah. for this. Now, full time. I would say that if you've got something very specific that needs a particular degree, or if there's some place you want to go where you know you can't go without a particular degree, I mean, I'd be a petroleum engineering, or like whatever it is, right, then, then that you know, that's a pretty good case to make. If you're dying to be a lawyer, right, then, although there's a bunch of bunch of law school, school grads now suing their law schools because they can't find work. But anyway, oh. like if you want to be an engineer, like something the way you got, you just got to get the piece of paper to do it, or a doctor or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if you really want to be one of those things, then um, that, that's, that's the hoop you got to jump through. And on the other hand, if you... If you just want to acquire general knowledge and share it, you do not need to go to college. You know, I mean, in hindsight, you know, like if if I'd have known the way my crazy life was going to go, which is sort of an impossible <laughs> requirement, but, um, you know, if, if you've got enough money to go to college, well, college is going to cost you a lot of money. Why not just 
stu- like take time off from work and study the stuff you want to study. Oh yeah. Right. And and that doesn't mean you have to do it alone. There could be online groups, there could be people that you could meet up with uh, and 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 all that. But um I don't know that you, you know, it's going to save you a lot of money. Because in order to be te- taught by a professor, the professor has to have knowledge that you really want and you can only get by paying him. You know, like if I got a toothache, the dentist has particular skills that I got to pay for that I can't do it on my own, right? Yeah. And so, you you know, at the very least, you definitely want to find a college that's right up your alley in terms of what they're teaching, right? Like, I mean, if, if you want to do something in economics, then, you know, there are particular schools that are more focused on uh, free market economics, like the George Mason or some of the University of Chicago has some um, more free market bend to it. And so I think, and you definitely want to go, in my opinion, to a college where there's no affirmative action. And that's really important. That's to me. That's really important for a number of reasons. Number one, of course, affirmative action is going to lower the quality of the education you receive, just by definition. Unqualified people are getting in. And number two, you know, you don't like if there are a bunch of minorities or women or whoever around who are there because of affirmative action. It's going to be hard to avoid having a negative view of those groups. Yeah. You know, whereas of course, if if everyone's there on merit then everyone's there on merit and you're not going to end up with any particular negative view of any group, right? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, you made some really good points. Um, yeah, I think but, it's, it's just, no, go ahead, go ahead. uh, something that I can't help having it on my mind. Just, it's so in driven into your head. Like the, as soon as you go to school, oh, you have to go to university. It's like, I'm just surrounded by it. So I, Definitely wanted to. I we're just was just trying to figure out, you know, if there was um, uh, pros that I wasn't seeing because I'm de- very aware of the cons of. Well, look, here's here. here's the thing too. I let's say I had a PhD in Harvard in philosophy. Right. Yeah. Let's say that. And, and postdoctorate work and whatever, right? I studied under the reincarnated spirit of Bertrand Russell or something. <laughs> Let's say that I had that intimidating paperwork backup. I can tell you one thing for sure that would happen is that my arguments would be less good. Oh, yeah. Because I have to convince people that I have something of value to offer in the realm of philosophy without a PhD in philosophy from Harvard. So I have to work harder. I'm like the I'm like the fat girl on a date with a hot guy. Oh, I'll work harder. (laughs) Sorry. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think you do. <laughs> I think you do. Oh, I'm I'm put out. That's what I'm saying. Am I being too blunt? No, that's uh, that totally makes sense. But you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. I got to work harder. I got to work harder. And um, you know, if I, you know, if I have so I 
degree in in history and my focus on the history of philosophy b- pretty big themes in the history of philosophy my master's thesis but i don't you know i i never say to people well listen i have this degree so you should <laughs> listen i mean that's i i have to work harder i yeah. have to work harder and i'll tell you this almost nothing that i know of value came from college almost nothing really that I know of value. The principles that I use, almost all of them existed before I set foot in one college classroom. Wow. Like the objectivism, which was the foundation for a lot of my thinking, years before I went to college. When I was working um, up north, I I grabbed armfuls of books because, you know, you work for eight hours and then you sit in a tent for eight hours, right? You, you got some time before tablets and right, yeah. no internet. <laughs> and I just, I would grab, I grabbed armfuls of books and I just read voraciously. It's when I read the Bible and I read a lot of the ancient Greek texts. I went through a lot of Socrates and well, Plato. Socrates didn't write anything, but mm-hmm. I went through, you know, just went through a lot of stuff. And this is all before I went to college. Now, I did, you know, literature, I learned, because I took two years of an English degree, so I learned a lot of literature, but I had already read, I mean, I was like 14 when I first read Crime and Punishment, so a lot of the, like, there's not, like, I don't fall back on my college education when I run into difficulties, you know, in terms of trying to figure something out. Okay. And if, if you want to be original... Being overeducated can squelch that. Yeah. You know, is it is it easier to write a song if you know a hundred thousand songs, or is it easier to write a song if you only know a hundred songs? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Arguments to be made for the less, right? So, I think if if I mean certainly if you want to do alternative media. You better. You, you should use that money to get the equipment and and just just go and start doing it. Okay. And and recognize that you are going to have to work harder than somebody who's got some piece of paper behind him, which is good. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Is that means that that means that you that means that you have the chance to achieve something greater. Yeah. Let me tell you one other story. Yeah, go for it. It's not mine. But this is a story I read when I was in my mid-teens. A huge impact on me. And it was about a guy who was a butler. And one day, his master calls him into his room and says, he's called the guy Jeeves. I don't remember the guy's name. Jeeves, it has just come to my attention that you don't even know how to read. Is that true? Yes, I don't know how to read. Never did learn, sir. Never found it necessary for my service. Well, I can't have a butler who doesn't even know how to read. I'd be a laughingstock. You're fired. Well, all right, sir. That's where you want it. And guy wanders out of the house, Jeeves the butler, and he wants to smoke his pipe, and he's walking down the street. But there's no store that sells tobacco anywhere on this whole long street. He goes home to his wife. He says, I just got fired. Why? I don't know how to read, as you know. When I was walking home, I couldn't even find tobacco for my pipe. 
And his wife says, well, isn't that a good idea? Why don't you open a tobacconist store on the street where you couldn't find tobacco? So he does. And it's very successful. And he opens another store, and he opens another store. Soon he has a whole chain of stores. And he's a multimillionaire. He goes into the bank. And he's going to buy a million-pound house. And the uh, bank manager is drawing up the papers for his loan, and the man says, well, you'll have to read them to me. Because I can't read. The bank manager says, wait, you have millions and millions of pounds. You're an incredibly successful entrepreneur, and you can't even read? He says, I can't even imagine what kind of success you'd be if you could read. And the man says, I can tell you exactly what kind of success I would be if I could read. I'd still be a butler. <laughs> That's great. That is awesome. I probably got half that story wrong, but that's the point. That is the, the point. Story. That is the point of the story. That you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's, uh, no, I thank you for that. That's something on my mind. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to try to work through that. That was really helpful stuff. If, if you want to be surrounded by people who need your credentials, then you're going to be limited by their lack of judgment. I ask people to judge me based upon my ideas, not upon my paperwork, which is 20 plus years old now anyway, and who cares, right? And so if, do, you, do you want the kind of listeners who are going to say, well, he doesn't have a PhD in this chosen discipline from... <laughs> from Harvard, so I'm just not going to listen. Like, why would you want those people anyway? And they're, they're boring old farts who don't have a shred of originality and can't think for themselves, and so they need paperwork because they can't think for themselves. Yeah. You don't want those people to be your listeners. You want people who can think for themselves. And the people who can think for themselves will evaluate your argument based upon its merits they will not surrender to the argument from authority called I have X, Y, or Z piece of paper. And I, I, this stuff doesn't mean what it used to mean. It doesn't like it. I, I think you could argue 50 years ago, you know, when it was really tough to get into these educational institutions and so on that, you know, it, it meant a lot more. Now the whole thing's been democratized and the, the scale of values has gone through the toilet and you know I mean it doesn't it doesn't mean what it used to mean and the problem is too is it gets worse and worse so my degree when there was not that much political correctness and very little affirmative action is now cluttered in with all this bullshit that's come out of stuff now where there's much more political correctness like some guy who got his degree 20 years ago from the University of Missouri now has his whole degree tainted by <laughs> <laughs> the idiots currently doing things at the University of Missouri. Yeah. So you got to think in the long run in terms of degrees are getting worse now. And particularly, I don't think they're so bad in the harder sciences, but in the arts, ugh, it's just become a bunch of politically correct garbage, in my opinion. No, I, and 
And so, so, and, and how is it going to be in 20, 10 years from now or 20 years from now? Mm-hmm. So if you've, if there's something that you're passionate about intellectually, just go start doing it. You know, if you want to learn, how about you go start up a channel on whatever you're passionate about intellectually and spend time and buy the equipment and spend the time and spend the time researching and spend the time coming up with the stuff you want to talk about and after four years you'll have an income not debt and trust me you will have learned a lot more by doing thinking rather than studying thinking you will learn a lot more about any particular subject you're fascinated about by going out and trying to sell it than by going and paying people who don't make any more money if you succeed than if you fail. I mean, you're a market guy, right? You said you like reading Milton Friedman for fun, right? Yeah. Well, is the university a market situation? Well, not really. No, it's not. It's not. It's not at all. At one point. And so if you value the market, if you value the market, then go into the market, which is try and sell your ideas in the marketplace for money. That's what I do. And find out the value and have all the challenges of that. Yeah. People who need a degree are looking for excuses to not find what you're doing meaningful enough to act upon it. You want to get people so excited by what it is that you're talking about that they're willing to change their lives for the better, no matter what the cost. A degree will not help you with that. All it will do is put you under the tutelage of politically correct morons for a couple of years and have you spit out, instead of with the businesses making money and four years of experience under your belt, talking about things that matter to a hungry world, you'll be spat out, uh, propagandized, exhausted, with four STDs, hopefully no rape charges, and in debt. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you, uh, I think you're right. And just do a cost, you know, there's ways to, you can do a cost-benefit ratio for arts degrees. You know, you'll see. They don't, they don't, they don't pay. No. No, that and that's part of um, why I called you is really a cost-benefit analysis of uh, you know the value of the experience itself and what I get out of it. So, like that was very enlightening. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And if you do decide to do something, will you let us know so we can uh, send a few people your way? If you do send to do something in the alternative media. Or just you know, you can spend you can spend four years for writing, writing four books if you want. You know, you can learn a lot more about things that way than do something active. You know, school is fundamentally passive. Yeah. Okay. I did just buy a uh, microphone and uh, you know media set for my computer, so I think that's something I will end up doing. Yeah, but you know, did who's your favorite band? Oh, the Who. The Who. All right. The Who. Did they go to music college? Um, I don't believe. 
No, I don't think any of them did. No, they did not. They went out and wrote music and played clubs and beat up on each other. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, the, the Beatles went to Hamburg, not to the Royal Academy of Music. They went and played music. You know, the band members for Queen were all in college. They all quit. To go do music. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, these guys all dropped out of college to do their thing. I um, didn't go do a PhD. I went into the business world, which gave me a, you know, the, the, the entrepreneurial skills to make a go of this business. And um, also gave me, you know, some real credibility when it comes to talking about free market stuff because, you know, people can say, well, do you have a PhD in economics? I certainly don't. But I was an entrepreneur and a successful one for a decade and a half, I guess now going on 20 years, which means that I might know some things that even the PhD in economics don't know because I've actually done it. Yeah. Not just done the math, done the thing itself. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think that helps uh, clear that up. That was on my mind. But yeah. Good. Well, I hope that helps. And um, you know, if there's some college course you're dying for, I mean, and most of them are online for free anyway. I mean, most of the professors have recorded their courses, and you can go and find them anyway. So. Mm-hmm. So that would be my suggestions. Okay. Um, can I shower you with praises now? Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to assume my relaxed position of absorbing praise, uh, and I am, I am ready. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I've been listening to the show since, well, since you had Bill on, and it's, it's my new favorite thing on the internet. So it's. Oh, how nice. I really thank you for it. It's. You've. Uh, challenged a lot of opinions i've had before and uh i thank you for it i've been able to share the show with all my immediate family and a couple friends and they're really enjoying it too so they all thank you as well well i appreciate that favorite thing on the internet so we beat porn uh second favorite (laughs) (laughs) okay maybe working at home might not be the thing for you Wow, tired. Hand cramp. Oh, I'll, I'll do some work. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I appreciate that. Hey, second favorite thing on the internet. I'll take that. That's, that's uh, you good. know, that's, yeah, I think, you know, we all know, right? But that's, you know, I appreciate the very high praise. So I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, first favorite thing on the internet didn't actually show up during the conversation, but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see, but I appreciate that. Uh, thanks, thanks for your very kind words, and you'll you'll keep us posted about what you decide. I will, Steph. I'll be happy to. All right, all right. Well, thank you, and thanks everyone so much for these great conversations. It's a privilege and honor, which I still expect to get paid for. I know, I know. It's just how it works for me, and and for reality. So, freedomainradio.com/slash/donate to help us out. Uh, it's essential that you do. You know. The right thing to do is something you have to do. Free ride on other people's good decisions. So, uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. FDRURL.com slash Amazon. If you've got some shopping to do, why not? Use our affiliate link. Costs you nothing. Nothing, I tell you. So, uh, thanks, uh, everyone, so much for the calls tonight. And have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. Look for the untruths about Donald Trump, part the second. 
which will be out soon. And um, have a great, great weekend. We'll talk to you soon.